0: Greetings, ladies, germs, and fellow music geeks of all persuasions. And greetings, especially from Houston, Texas, and Gwangju, South Korea. Yes. You are are now listening to the 19th installment, 19th, of the Curmudgeon Rock Report.
1: Imagine imagine that. That would be 19 episodes in eight months, which is... uh, by uh, a lot of DIY podcast standards, ain't bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, considering that we didn't know what we were doing this time a year ago, uh, I think that we have, uh, come a long way. Uh, we're certainly better than product 19, uh, the cereal. <laughs> I, I, I will say that that was my least favorite of the brand cereals as a kid.
0: Yeah. That, uh, that, was, that was definitely the blandest. I won't, I much preferred, uh, uh, special K.
1: Yeah. And, uh, what you mean, ketamine?
0: Ketamine. <laughs> when yeah. I got older, I got into that more. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to
1: say, you know, hey, I, I never actually did special K. It's like one of the only drugs I didn't do uh, <laughs> in, in my younger days. But uh, be that as it may, hey. Uh, so, so folks, know we're recording this a couple of days after the 20th anniversary of September 11th, and uh, it's interesting. Two of my favorite albums of all time came out on September 11th, 2001. Uh, Jay-Z's The Blueprint, which was the most New York York hip-hop record that had come out in at least a decade. But
0: definitely not the best.
1: (laughs) We disagree. Uh, And uh, also Dylan's Love and Theft which I still think is one of the top five records of the last 25 years. Just brilliant, brilliant stuff, which captured uh, George Bush and Al Gore. I hear those two guys all over that record. Maybe that's just me, and maybe I'm crazy, but I hear that. But strange, but true, I did some research. Slayers' God Hates Us All was released Mm -hmm. on September 11, 2001, thereby making them Osama bin Laden's favorite band.
0: (laughs) <laughs>
1: and if you are yeah. offended by that, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or uh, go add us on Twitter at uh, curmudgeonpod.
0: And let it be known that we don't give a fuck if you're offended by that.
1: <laughs> no, 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 nah. no, we don't. We know we don't. But but, but we, invite, we invite some shit talking.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Jay-Z's A Blueprint. Um, that's an album that I've always seen um, uh, as one of the demarcation points. Of the beginning of the end of mainstream hip hop <laughs> as being quality music, and that brings us to our episode today. I love it; he doesn't. We're each going to talk about albums that we love that the other person doesn't love. Could like they could like it, but just not love it, and then we'll do vice versa. So this yes. will be this will this, this will be fodder for lots of curmudgeonly bickering, bitching, and overall disagreement.
1: now enter what our parallel universe uh the parallel universe is where we go every episode and this is really a universe that we prefer we cross over to the other side and lo and behold the best uh artists in rock hip-hop dance or whatever you want to call it are on the top of the charts they're filling the stadiums people love them and respect them as much as we do uh, they're not a well-kept secret. Uh, they're plastered on Rolling Stone covers. Uh, and it's interesting. You know, some of our folks uh, in the parallel universe that we've covered have won Grammys. But since nobody gives a shit about the Grammys anymore, uh, oh, yeah. I, guess, I guess that's okay. Uh, <laughs> on that note, uh, this is where each of us uh, visits an album uh, that's come out uh, uh, recently. And let us call this the uh, the blues before and after death metal uh, <laughs> uh, version of the parallel universe. Arturo, you're yeah. you first,
0: or as I like to call it, the <sighs> version of the parallel universe. <laughs> yeah, star,
1: star star scream on vocals, everyone.
0: Star scream yeah. Well, like I said, my. The, the album I will, not so, I will not really recommend, but I will talk about because we talked about this band before. Several episodes ago, Death Heaven, the heavy metal band from the Bay Area, made our list of the 20 greatest artists in modern rock. So naturally, with their new album, Infinite Granite, out now, it's natural that we review it as if they were a staple of modern rock radio. Or at least as you've said before, Chris, modern rock radio as er imagined by us curmudgeons. So in summary, Death Heaven originating in San Francisco is arguably the greatest heavy metal band of the last decade. And arguably the only rock artist to have done something totally unique and original with the genre in more than a decade. Um, Basically they merged the bombast and the power of death metal with the shimmering prettiness of shoegazer and the shifting dynamics of prog rockish, multi section compositional style of post rock. Now, while I admit I'm not a big fan of either of those three sub genres, <laughs> with, with, with a few exceptions, uh, Death Heaven did manage to walk a tightrope and they created something intoxicatingly heavy and beautiful. And weirdly melodic and accessible at the same time. Uh, I mean, they they came as close to crossing over without crossing over as any band had. Uh, Their absolute peak and the album that best exemplifies what Deaf Heaven is all about is Sunbather from 2013, which is pretty much a modern classic at this point. Yeah, it's Uh, a jaw dropper for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, New Bermuda from 2015 uh, is also excellent. And it accentuates the metal aspect of the band. Um, Ordinary corrupt human love from 2018, their most recent album, has a cleaner sound and production. And it accentuates the post rock side of the band. Uh, imagine Mogwai if they were consistently good and not as yawn-inducing. And that's pretty much what that what that album was for Mogwai. Oh, sorry for Deaf Heaven. Uh, now enter infinite granite hmm. now now death heaven for as groundbreaking as they seemed eight years ago over the course of the year of the past few years they've revealed themselves to be pretty rigid in the triangle that they live in right and that tr- that triangle is death metal slash heavy metal post rock uh sorry death metal heavy metal slash post-rock, and shoegazer. Like, those are their three corners, right? And whereas the previous two albums leaned a little more on the first two while managing to strike that lovely balance, right? The new album leans way, way too heavily on the shoegazer side while making the other two elements of their sound almost obsolete. And the result is this shiny shimmering piece of glossy indie dream pop that is painfully cliche and conventional and it really kills that delicate balance remember the tightrope i spoke of earlier it kills that balance that made death heaven so special to begin with i mean like seriously how many bands in the realm of what is now called indie rock Have tread this ground that Death Heaven is doing now. Have tread this ground before and ended up being completely forgotten due to due to hundreds of other bands doing the exact same shit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like all these guys, they like uh, convince themselves that they can. Hey, you know, I mean, you know, the, the the New Orders and a few other bands out there have been able to do it, and so why can't we? I mean, come on, look, even Smashing Pumpkins failed at this shit. So, I mean, uh, so, you know, you mentioned that they were doing the tightrope. I get this picture of my mind of that French dude that did the tightrope act act between the two towers, the the Twin Towers. Yeah. And him, like, falling (laughs) and and splattering on the street. That's the image that really comes up because a couple of mistakes on this, you know, one – uh, they don't particularly do the synth, um, you know, sort of orthodox shoegazer thing uh, well. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have the songs, and then, I mean, come on, dude, uh, you're really, really great at the Star Scream, like kind of, you know, because the great thing about death metal is is the vocals are an instrument, and so you get that kind of scratchy, raspy, <laughs> you know, but it, and it kind of comes in, but then the dude tries to sing and it's like dude you can't sing yeah, that, to,
0: yeah yeah exactly i mean george clark is the name of the singer and like he that patented death metal growl that he has has basically disappeared for the most part except for like the back end of a few of a couple of songs and he like you said he's actually honest to god singing but therein lies the problem <laughs> you know he's <laughs> he, he he's a pretty shitty singer with limited range yeah. and it, it, he has the problem is he just has this completely utterly indistinctive voice you can go to any dive bar in the bay area and find a dude who can sing like like george clark which is basically not much <laughs> you know and top that off with like some of the wussiest cheesiest weak ass melodies befitting a substandard shoegazer record and you get a shower of shit you know, um, and you combine all that together and you get a once mighty band that has been effectively emasculated in the worst way possible.
1: Yeah, I have to uh, uh, say that you said a substandard uh, shoegazer record, otherwise just known as a sho- as a shoegazer record.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's yeah. only one My Bloody Valentine, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So now, uh, while we're on the subject of not necessarily death metal, but that sort of uh, uh, that heavyish uh, uh, dark uh, metal thing.
0: Black uh, metal. It's Called black metal.
1: Yes, uh, black metal. And which is weird. I don't. Do you think Death Heaven counts as black metal in the traditional sense, or they're 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 closer to death metal? There they're is closer, a difference.
0: They're closer to death. Well, prime peak Death Heaven is closer to death metal.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so now I'm going to pivot us into uh, actual black metal. And uh, this is a new album by Wolves in the Throne Room. Uh, some of you may be familiar with them. They probably are America's finest purveyor of uh, black metal, which uh, I hope isn't damning with faint praise. Uh, you know, But so... I'll talk to them a little bit uh, about them, and they have this thing that they call Cascadian black metal. Yes, they hail from the woods of Washington State. (laughs) Uh, And so just to talk a little bit about them. Now, black metal, uh, much like new metal, is one of those subgenre names that the artists within it probably wish was never coined. Sure, uh, black metal or doom metal, as it's also called, has its roots in one of the most insane music committee uh, communities in history, namely a bunch of deeply disturbed guys in Norway who gave themselves names like Euronymous and Death and legit ate each other's bones and murdered each other. Seriously, go check out this YouTube uh, uh, DIY documentary on the band Mayhem. Uh, it's one of the... Uh, depending on how you want to look at it, funnier or more fucked up uh, watches you'll you'll have all year. Anyway, it's a shame, really, because uh, the black metal connotation and its twisted conventional wisdom uh, cheapens and stains what often can be striking and profound music, uh, stoked by building walls of noise and double-take-inducing symphonic or over-the-top synthesizer touches. And it tends to focus much more on the earth than hell. Hey... Death is still death, but it's brought to you more by the Vikings and the Pagans, and less by Satan than the uninitiated would think. Uh, here, here in but America, they,
0: but, but 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 they still growl their voices. So what's you know, yes, what? yeah, but no, no, they're,
1: they're growling at the dirt rather than the fire, yeah. uh, for sure. Uh, here in the U.S. of A., uh, the most revered of the underground black metal bands these days is Wolves in the Throne Room. Uh, at least the ones that are actually still doing uh, black metal or death metal or whatever you want to call it. Uh, This band really uh, is spearheaded by two brothers, uh, Nathan and Aaron Weaver. Uh, They formed this band in Olympia, Washington in 2003, and they soon took to worshiping the trees and the forests and the woods and the beautiful earth of their beloved Cascadian region. Uh, If you want to learn more about Cascadia, and it's a uh, really kind of fascinating worldview, uh, go check out the uh, Wikipedia page for Cascadia. It's entertaining. So, uh, yep, folks, this is music to LARP by. So if you like dressing up in, like, like old uh, witches and wizards clothes, this shit is for you. Uh, Aaron Weaver himself describes Wolves in the Throne, their concept, the band's concept of Cascadian black metal, this way. Quote, our music invokes the spirits that reside in the mountains and rivers, the sun and moon, the plants and animals. These deities have been with us since ancient times, but their voices have been drowned out in the modern world. Yeah.
0: Yeah, whatever, dude.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the Weavers extend their reverence for the sweet darkness of the Washington Woods into their newest album. The just released and not so subtly titled Primordial Arcana. Uh, which, by the way, is my favorite album title this year, slightly ahead of We're All Alone in This Together by Dave. Now, uh, this album builds on the band's tradition of mixing the lush with the somber, with the raging, and back again, all while inserting the occasional odd fit of goth and post-punk. It all soars, and it occasionally slows into something beautiful. Now, this will make me sound a little bit lazy, but the highlight, sincerely, of Primordial Arcana comes in early in the magnificent first 77 seconds of Mountain Magic. Uh, You hear a crackling fire and a low chant juxtaposed against an icy synth rift and sprinkling chimes, which then leads into an ever more dramatic lead guitar line and rapid fire uh, bass drumming that then segues into the booming, soaring riffage and an indecipherable uh, rasping vocal track that might as well be an instrument. Weaver tells us that mountain magic is, quote-unquote, an entry point into the world of magic and dreams. Gnarly. Wow. Now, yes. this, kind, this kind of thing can get to be a nerd and even boring if it goes on for too long, something that wolves in the throne room have learned as they've aged. Primordial Arcana keeps its uh, uh, thing to eight songs and 49 minutes, with only two songs surpassing seven minutes. This stands in contrast to the album that first propelled the band and Cascadian metal into broader cult adoration, 2007's Two That was four songs and 46 minutes.
0: So, 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 high so, so, high by- so basically they went from like obs- really obscure to just less obscure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, basically they, they, they have their cult following. And uh, that album that coincidentally was highlighted by a pounding 18-minute coda with the wonderful title, I will lay down my bones among the rocks. I mean, what the fuck is this? Is it, that's like something out of Ezekiel, you know, it's, it's kind of creepy. So now the band channeled this newfound economy in Owl Lodge. It's called Owl Lodge. It's a home studio in their uh, beloved Washington Woods there outside of Olympia. Uh, and these guys self-produced this album. Now, what it cuts in length, it makes up for in height. Even for these guys, this is a loud sonic boom. See especially Masters of Rain and Storm, a rumbling 11 minute pile driver that might work as the score of a new Conan the Barbarian movie. I was hey, going to mention
0: Conan the Barbarian in my description of this album. This, yeah. album. this whole album sounds like the soundtrack for the next Conan movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, no shit. And hey, look, everything else is fucking coming back. I mean, I just read that Steven Spielberg is releasing a, a, a new version of West Side Story, which is kind of weird. Oh God. But but hey, if everything else is coming back, why can't Conan?
0: <laughs> so now
1: here's a here's a last quote from uh, Aaron Weaver. Uh, we wanted to emphasize the role of the synthesizers to create an epic and grand atmosphere. The Owl Lodge has a towering monolith of rack synths from the 90s. They contain sounds that cannot be created any other way. Well, you know, actually they can, uh, but you get by now that these guys take black metal to its earthiest, crunchiest extremes. Uh, For a decidedly American take on one of Norway's most glorious exports, check out Wolves in the Throne Room. The end.
0: Uh, Okay, now the beginning of my take on this album. Uh, Man. (laughs) I, I knew you were. I knew you were going to go there. Yeah, like seriously. I know these guys predate Deaf Heaven by almost a decade. Well, not really. Their first album was 07. so they predate Deaf Heaven by only a few years. '04, oh, um, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, '04 oh, was their first album. Okay. Well, the, the thing is like these guys, um, they don't. Deaf Heaven had this really complicated. Well, Peak Death Heaven, I should say at this point, had their, you know, really engaging, you know, a uh, uh, complex but appealing set of dynamics that um, this band Wolves doesn't have. They uh, Death Heaven had a melodic invention that is totally absent in Wolves in the Throne Room. Um, and honestly, they just, uh, Death Heaven just seems more eclectic in their style. If, if I'm comparing these two bands that we're comparing here in our parallel universe. Oh, oh, no doubt. You know, and
1: I'm, I'm agreeing with everything you say. I, I yeah, will yeah. not make an argument that Wolves in the Throne Room is a better band than Death Heaven. I'm not yeah. that dumb. No, uh,
0: but, no, but what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is that whereas Death Heaven transcended their subgenre, to me, Wolves in the Throne Room are just like firmly rooted in it and to me aren't doing anything interesting with it. Whereas Death Heaven did, you know, that's, yeah, that's I, my point. You know, well,
1: well, the thing about it, I actually would say that as black metal goes, I, these guys are akin to a jam band, uh, <laughs> you know, it, which is which is interesting because they kind of take it like uh, these twisty, bendy, like weird places. And uh, they do have this sort of loud, soft dynamic that is a little bit more intriguing than uh, other uh, uh, death metal bands. I know that, you know, fish, death heaven fish, does that.
0: fish in the throne room.
1: Yeah, fishing. Yeah,
0: Blue Traveler in the Throne Room. Well, at least at least with fish, you know, the Stonehenge their their old Stonehenge concept album would apply to Wolves in the Throne Room.
1: Yeah, per, per, pretty much. And then of course, there's also my my favorite, Widespread Panic in the Throne Room. <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyway, like I said, I, I think it's a good record. Uh, I do think this band has some chops. Uh, they, uh, they're obviously very earthy. And if they're in the Washington woods, they're probably smoking half of it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you, you can tell, but yeah. you know, I, I do think they're worth checking out. Uh, I will advise it, it. takes some patience like all of black metal and all of this sort of symphonic metal. Uh, but once you settle in, it's headphone, it's headphone music, it's headphone music. And you have to either be sort of in a meditative state or you actually have to be doing something. And it will grow on you uh, as, yeah. as you listen. So
0: check it out. So, yeah, I mean, I mean to me, to me, listen, to me, it's all it, it just, I mean, I respect the musicianship of these guys. You can tell these guys are really good musicians. But the thing is, it's just that it's just all monotonous and same sounding. Um, it's also, to me, the way I hear it, very subdued compared yeah. to a lot of black metal or death metal. I mean, yeah, if, I'm, if I'm listening to metal, I want it to fucking rock yeah (laughs) you know and these guys guys don't rock enough for my tastes
1: yeah they're they're yeah they're a little they're they're pretty and they're precious yeah uh which is i said it's an interesting mix because they can riff it up i mean there's some sections uh you know masters of wind and storm there uh where it they get a little bit metallica ish there for uh, bits and pieces so no they they can rock but you know if there's one criticism maybe they don't rock enough but uh, they're good. They're good, yeah. and uh, we're checking out. So
0: two uh, two more things I want to make about uh, Wolves sure. in the Throne Room. You go on YouTube, and I looked at the the album stream for uh, uh, this album in particular, Primordial Arcana, and you go through the YouTube the YouTube comments and you go through all of them. Right, all male. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh,
1: abs- a- a- absolutely. If you think Rush has a female fan problem, yeah. No, there's there's not a whole lot of black metal fans, and especially like American, like you know, uh, black metal from the woods of Washington. It's kind of <laughs> funny because they were in Olympia, Washington, in 2003, so which is like I'm the sure- right
0: girl movement capital of the world. You know? Yeah. It's like
1: yeah. Well, yeah. It's like all feminists all the time. So I'm sure I'm sure they got laid, but. They didn't pick up any actual fans. Uh,
0: so, <laughs> Another thing I want, anyway. last point. Look at the song titles. Let's go through them. Mountain Magic, Spirit of Lightning. I guess they have no radio, so they have to go with the Spirit of Lightning. Uh, <laughs> through, through Eternal Fields. Primal Chasm, in parentheses, Gift of Fire. Underworld Aurora. Masters of Rain and Storm, Eelster, and Skyclad Passage. These guys have spent way too much time reading George R.R. Martin novels. No
1: no shit. This is why I said it's music to learn by, you know, for sure. You know, if if like chasing dragons in a field on a Sunday afternoon is your thing, uh, Wolves in the Throne Room is a band for you. So on that note, let us now uh, exit the Parallel Universe and go uh, back through the Stargate uh, into ours. So now we can do uh, a literal love-hate relationship between our musical tastes. So uh, Arturo, uh, describe our concept here.
0: Yeah. um, Chris, you and I have known each other for almost 30 years. Yes, we're that old. And for all this time, as much as we've agreed on some bands and albums i.e. anything from the alt-grunge era, most classic 60s, 70s rock, our loathing for most corporate radio rock, etc. Our curmudgeonly history has also been marked by artists and albums that we've disagreed on. So on this very personal episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we are going crazy eight, as each of us will give eight albums that we love and explain why while the other will tear them down and explain why they're overrated. Now, let me make it be clear. If the one person doesn't love this album, it does not mean that we hate it. It means that we probably like it, but we just think it's overrated or not as good as the other person or other critics think they are.
1: Yeah, but, but, you know, there are a couple of instances where there is some hate. Yes. Um, but uh, I will say, yeah. You know, so we wanted to do this because, again, it highlights uh, we roomed together in uh, a story in New York a long time ago, tw- 20 years ago. Uh, one of the greatest years of my life was where I was unemployed, but we had the most success I ever had uh, as a writer and creative. Uh, but uh, we we spent a lot of time uh, uh, debating uh what we thought each other was listening to that sucked uh i actually at that point i was in a big phase of actually admiring max martin uh which i, I don't think you ever really uh, uh dug there uh arturo i also yeah. like i also like pod i didn't choose that because I, <laughs> I i cured myself of that disease uh, uh after a couple of years yeah but uh, yeah This episode, it would have been more interesting if we had just done uh, something on uh, uh, albums that we both hate. You know, nobody wants to listen to us go on for five minutes about $3 bill, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. In rock and roll, as in life, some months are better than others. Actually, some months are way better than others. Travel back 30 years, for instance, when never mind The Low End Theory... Bad Motorfinger and Blood Sugar Sex Magic were all released on the same day in September 1991. Talk about defining a decade. I'll give you another month that defined a decade. September 1985. How good was it? Well, the Curmudgeon Rock Report will be dedicating an entire episode to that incredible month uh, soon. The PMRC hearings. Farm Aid. We Built This City. Money for nothing. And Whitney Houston reaching the top 10. Oh, what a month. Is there another month in rock history you feel was just as awesome? Hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com.
0: All right. So the first the first person who will, will be giving his eight albums that he absolutely loves, but the other one doesn't, and we'll discuss why. And we're going to go in chronological order in this one instead of like oh no the rankings of 10 to 1 or anything like that we're just doing chronological order and the first of the eight that i love that chris doesn't love so much is oddly enough from chris's idol neil young and his 1972 mainstream breakthrough album harvest now I'm, i'm just i'm just gonna keep this short sweet and simple i love the album because i think it has some of the most beautiful individual songs that Neil Young has ever written. Not just his most popular. You know, yeah, yeah, of course, Heart of Gold. Okay, duh. (laughs) You know, everyone and their mothers have, you know, covered that song. But you have that. um, You have the beautiful swaying title track. um, You have Old Man. uh, You have Alabama, The Needle and the Damage Done. Are You Ready for the Country has been covered by... You know, not surprisingly, several country artists. Country artists, yeah. <laughs> you know, Out on the Weekend is a beautiful song. Yeah, there are a couple of schmaltzy symphonic overproductions, one of which sucks. There's a world that that is way overdone. But I actually like A Man Needs a Maid. Um, I think that song was really uh, misinterpreted it was, it was when it came out. You know, a lot of feminists were angry at that song because, oh, what are you saying? A woman's place is only as a maid? No, it's Neil Young saying. I'm fucked up. I need a woman to balance my life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: He Uh, was a lonely lonely guy. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, look, I understand why Harvest gets the love. Uh, You know, it's one, and this is going to be a little bit of a theme here. Uh, The, some of these albums, a lot of albums are defined by Mm -hmm. their hits. They have those two or three hits. And then because those hits are so strong and so revered, you kind of let the rest of the album off the hook. That's my uh, attitude about Neil. And as Arturo, Arturo just said, uh, Neil Young is my idol. Uh, he's the guy. I and mean, I at one point owned uh, 26 of his records. Now I have them on my phone uh, via streaming. Uh, uh, he, The guy is brilliant. And that's maybe one of the reasons why I'm lukewarm on Harvest. Because... This is the album that set the template that Neil came back to a few times for, okay, I've made my weird eccentric statements. Now I need to make some money.
0: <laughs> uh, and, yes.
1: and so that's kind of what he did. And look, at this point, he during this uh, recording, he had uh, blown out his back and he was stuck in Nashville. And he happened to have Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor in town. Uh visiting them for the weekend, and they got together and they cut some of these songs. You know, Old Man Heart of Gold. Uh, everybody knows them. Uh I Love Out on the Weekend. Uh, okay. But then beyond that, uh, Arturo mentioned the two Jack Nietzsche uh string section, way over the top, schmaltzy, like boring ass uh songs. Uh Alabama is uh Neil ripping off himself.
0: <laughs> uh <laughs> no. It but it's much such, a great, such a great guitar playing, though. Great riffage, great solos, man. Well, yeah,
1: but but it was done much better in its first iteration, Southern Man. And uh, he didn't have David Crosby and Graham Nash singing background on that. Uh, I'm one of the few people that's actually more annoyed uh, than <laughs> uh, awed by the harmonies of, of those three or four guys. Uh, <laughs> so that that's something there. Uh the best song on the record is Needle and the Damage Done. Right. Um, and so this is supposed to be his kind of not hokey, but this is this kind of, you know, wide eyed young guy singing ditties. Uh, but in the middle of this, he has this really beautiful uh, solo acoustic guitar performance uh, about uh, heroin addiction and the loss of his friend Danny Whitten, uh, you know, live. And it's a real departure from the rest of the record because the rest of the record is sort of like, you know, it's definitely very polished. Yeah. Yeah. Very polished. Uh, very set for the mainstream. Uh, there's always this bullshit that goes on in the rock press and VH1 now about uh, who invented country rock. And people like to describe that to the Eagles. Some people have ascribed this to uh, uh, to Neil. No, actually, you know, I guess a closer answer would be "Sweetheart of the Rodeo" uh, by the Birds yeah. is yeah. probably a better answer. Yeah. Uh, so that that's always annoyed me too. So when I think of this record, I think of this annoying, uh, this annoying reverence.
0: Yeah. Moving on. Moving on. Number two, my album that I absolutely love that Chris doesn't love as much, and it is the all-time booty shaking. Uh, Funky as a Motherfucker classic by Parliament, George Clinton in Parliament, Mothership Connection from 1975. Now, for all you kiddies out there who don't understand the importance of George Clinton, why Parliament is important, particularly as opposed to Funkadelic, which was Clinton's like uh, acid rock, r and flavored acid rock excursion um parliament is like the other side of funkadelic usually the same musicians actually (laughs) Uh, just completely different music um why parliament is important here's why two reasons number one in the second half of the 1970s from the mid-70s to the end of the 70s what was dominant disco (laughs) okay disco had conquered the fucking world at this point Parliament, by this point, by, by the uh, mid to late 70s, they were the only artists in Black American music, in R&B, soul, who were keeping funk alive. They were the only ones. All the other funk bands and funk groups went over to disco. Casey and the Sunshine Band started his funk, went into disco. Even freaking James Brown, you know, started, you know uh, uh, flirted with disco by 70 of that thing. Yeah, I actually kind of like that song. But anyway. Yeah, no, I like that song, but it's disco. Yeah. But anyway, um, so Clinton with the Parliament outfit really kept the funk alive. And he kept it commercial during the peak of disco. So that is why not just Mothership Connection, but a lot of the albums that followed Mothership Connection kept the funk thing going. And the second reason why Parliament is important um, is that really the, the, those Parliament records are foundational influences on the next dominant black American uh, music form, hip hop. you know without without do without parliament the, the 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 basic foundations that that, that the, the beats that would be sampled later on throughout the eighties. James Brown may be the most maybe the most sampled man ever. George Clinton, the most second most sampled man ever, and a yeah, lot of sh- a lot a lot of the shit that hip hop did in the eighties wouldn't exist without those fucking badass bass grooves and funky gnarly beats and fu- and that 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 Clinton invented. Yeah, G-smoke. it's, it, it's you know? more like the
1: early nineties because the uh, the James Brown sampling and uh, sort of the the Rick Rubin and the James Brown thing had run its course by ninety, and so it was really duking it. Out. It was between jazz and, and, and P funk. It was digital underground first. And then Dr. Dre, obviously uh, yeah. most famously with the chronic and doggy style, uh, that, that brought it out. Uh, here's my thing with parliament. They are corny as hell.
0: Oh, they're supposed to be, it's supposed to be over the top. It's post acid, man. That's the I, whole yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. I understand.
1: But, but the, the brothers from outer space bit, uh, earth, wind and fire did it better.
0: No, they didn't. Um, they, they did a watered-down, cheesy, hokey, soccer mom version of what no, Parliament did. No, yeah, listen, I mean – Dude, oh, come on. Listen, I mean, listen. Parliament are the na- uh, when – aesthetically, they were the natural extension of Sun Ra. Basically, yeah. it, they were Sun Ra with a sense of humor. And they were very witty and clever. If you listen to a lot of those Parliament records, the lyrics aren't – yeah, there's, some of them are stony, goofy. But you, you listen deep, there's a lot of socio-political commentary going oh, on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A, lot yeah of, absolutely. a lot of environmental commentary going on. Um, well, not only
1: that, but One Nation Under a Groove, obviously, is a statement, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, and so, no, it's, so here's, well, Funkadelic yeah. is just so much better in Parliament. I mean, George, they, they're it, different. Yeah, they're different, but that was George Clinton's more serious... Uh, I guess quote unquote more serious side. I mean, all of it was influenced by angel dust. Let's face it, Uh, you know, angel dust, acid, cocaine, whatever you want to say. (laughs) Yeah. Lots and lots and lots of that kind of stuff. Lots of party drugs, but Funkadelic was sort of more of his kind of soul and his like really, uh, thrilling stuff. Whereas like, uh, mothership connection was almost like a high concept joke joke, but, solidly musically with, with the funk. And again, I it's credible and it can be fun. I just think it's just corny as hell and it can't hold a candle to Funkadelic. So
0: I, 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 I think it's right up there with some of the best, fun, the, the only Funkadelic albums I would put ahead of Parliament, sorry, ahead of Mothership Connection would probably be Maggot Brain, obviously, because that's one of the greatest albums ever made. Um, but that would that would probably be it. I mean, honestly, and uh, I, I, I love funkadelic. I'm a huge funkadelic fan as well. Free your uh, mind,
1: and your ass will follow. Uh, that's really that,
0: good too. That's really yeah, that's yeah. a great album.
1: Yeah, that that's a fun ass record. But yeah, yeah uh, like 24 year old me uh, really like Mothership Connection. 46 year old me is like, oh my goodness, that shit is corny. So
0: no, it's not as corny as Earth, Wind, and Fire. They were just bland and and, and blasé. Nah, no, no, they, Par- they wrote much. Parliament, Parliament were funkier. They had better musicianship. Well, not better, but but they had more no. interesting, more interesting musicianship. You know, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that Maurice White could write himself a, a really, really great song. More so, inventive and original was George Clinton and P Funk. Yeah, uh, I
1: mean, I, mean I, I get yeah. George Clinton's pretty singular, but so is Maurice White. So, uh, so I'll, I'll I'll give it up for Earth, Wind, and Fire. Par- Parliament. Okay, yeah, definitely influential as hell uh fun band but uh, i you know, i just you know the shtick is just you know i it just rubs me the wrong way these days yeah. be that as it may so now we segue from uh the brothers from another planet to uh uh white we,
0: brother it, from another planet
1: <laughs> to to uh, to Ziggy in Berlin
0: yeah basically david bowie's low in 1977 now here's my thing um no I do not agree with shit fork that low is the greatest album of the seventies. Uh, I mean, Fleetwood Mac rumors. Hello, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. sex pistols, Never mind the bollocks television, Marquis moon. No. And guess what? It's not even David Bowie's number one, best album, but you know what? Low is a foundational in one of the most, Pivotal, foundational, and influential pieces in David Bowie's catalog. Um, it is a supremely important record. Um, it really did, along with other artists and bands that I'll mention later, kind of set the stage for the sound that would take over in the first half of the 1980s, um, along with craft work. And uh, I would I would argue um, Gary Newman and the group he was with before I the name forgets me now, but they kind of they kind of invented the '80s in the late 1970s, and um, Low is one of those albums. So um, it deserves the the first half of it anyway. Well, no, I love the second half. It's beautiful, beautiful meditative, um, ambient stuff. Better, better than some of Brian Eno's own ambient stuff, even I think. Uh, even though Eno worked on it, um, but Bowie in interviews is like has gone on to uh, insist that like people have always suspected. Did Eno write those songs in the second half? And Bowie goes, "No, motherfucker." No. He didn't say motherfucker, but he said, "No, no, those are my chord progressions. Those are my basic." Elements of music. Eno just fleshed it out with the bells and whistles. But it's beautiful. I mean, the second half of Low is beautiful. It's it's lyrical. It's really lyrical. And and really, it it, it entails a, sorry, it conveys a depth and a warmth, actually, that the first half of the album, as amazing as it is, didn't really have that warmth. Intentionally so. I think Bowie crafted the right record this way. The first half is going to be the icy, weirdo, fractured, Stuff the second half is where the breath comes in, and uh, yeah. speaking in, in that context, I think low works amazingly well and has aged very well, too. Uh, he should have kept holding his breath, uh, you know, oh, honestly, Lowe,
1: yeah. I, look up, up with Carlos Alomar, down with Brian Eno. Uh, <laughs> that's that's my attitude with low, always has been. Uh, the first half of low was incredible. Uh, it's a bunch of half song jams, Yeah. Uh, you know, like, you know, sound and vision and uh, you know, some of the, some of the other stuff on that uh, on first half uh, is just extraordinary. in terms Even of instrumental
0: a so, uh, breaking glass is great. Always crashing oh. in the same car. You know? Oh yeah.
1: Always crashing in the same cars is, is fantastic. Uh, well, here's, but here's my thing uh, with, with low. And uh, for what it's worth, uh, since we're always uh, apt to bring you a little bit of trivia in these things, that pitchfork list of the best album of the 70s. Uh, number five, Blood on the Tracks. Number four, uh, There's a Riot going on by Spine and Family Stone. Overrated. Uh, yeah. Three, Marquee Moon uh, by Television. Uh, two, London Calling. By right uh, The yeah. And then David Bowie's Low. I would uh, – Profess to say that Lowe is the worst of those five albums. Uh, so, and it's not even his best Berlin record. That's Lodger.
0: Lodger's uh, my, I agree with you. Lodger's my personal favorite, but Lodger's very different. Lodger is basically what Bowie was doing is taking the, 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 the art, uh, the, the ambient electronica and the art rock of Lowe and Heroes and just twisting and turning it into this weird art pop. Lodger, yeah, yeah. Kind of, lodger exists in its own among that Berlin trilogy lodger kind of exists in its own sphere you
1: yeah know? yeah you know yeah it does it kind of twists into this really kind of original thing which coincidentally uh pretty much informs fear of music by the talking heads yeah uh, I, I think you know Eno and Bowie came up with both well Bowie and Eno yeah. came up with this formula on that that just kind of carried over to uh, burn and fear of music uh want to just just one last thing uh, I wanted to quote from uh, Stephen Thomas Erlewine, otherwise known as the one guy who writes for all all dot who can actually write worth the shit, uh, is the one that wrote the, uh, the the entry, that number one of the 70s entry for Pitchfork. And he says, Low is an album about rebirth, uh, which is why it still possesses the power to startle. And in my regard, I would say, sure, it startles as in, what is this shit? Uh, at least in the second half. Uh, Warsaw, I like. Uh, but here, here is the greatest this that I can give it. Philip Glass, sometime in the 90s, uh, arranged and conducted a symphonic version of low and the second half is much better as done by Philip Glass as it was done by Bowie and Eno. And Glass, Phil-
0: and, and Glass probably fucked up the first half.
1: No, actually he didn't. Actually, his his take on sound and vision is really good too. When Philip Glass is improving your shit, there's <laughs> something wrong.
0: Yeah, I'm not a Philip Glass fan, so it's hard for me to come back to that.
1: So, Okay, so we move on from uh, one... Uh, icon that I have a hard time understanding some of his reverence for some of his albums to another one that
0: I have a hard time understanding,
1: uh, Elvis Costello.
0: So tell us about This Year's Model. This Year's Model is my number four album that I love that you, Chris, don't love. It's Elvis Costello's This Year's Model. Now, here's my thing on Costello. I understand why a lot of people don't like Costello, particularly his later Later stuff and particularly after from the from the early eighties onward. Because I'll admit it's really patchy at best. You know, I, I mean I, I do like King of America a lot. I like Blood and Chocolate. But after that is just there isn't there's not such thing as a single great Elvis Costello record. It's just a bunch of Elvis Costello albums with two or three good songs in there, <laughs> you know. Um, but his great period was that period from nineteen seventy seven to nineteen eighty one. And I count 81 because I really like Trust. I love that yeah, album. I, I yeah, do too. That's the yeah. album he did. Uh, uh, some of the members of Squeeze worked with him on that record. But anyway, but we're going with this year's model, which is the album that is universally accepted as Costello's greatest work, period. It's the album for people who don't like Elvis Costello. And the reason why it's his best produced album um it's got the sharpest production. The drums sound like drums, the guitars sound like guitars. The keyboards aren't overwhelming everything like they would in later Elvis Costello records. Um his lyrics are angry, they're sharp, they're vivid. They're a little too anti-woman at parts, I'll admit, you know, um uh Robert Christgau has always said that about cuz about Costello. I just wish he liked women more. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, you know yeah, that's one, that's one of my complaints about Costello. Yeah, too. yeah.
0: I get that. But remember, he also was like, he was wicked young when he did these records. He was early to mm-hmm. mid twenties. So this is before yeah. he matured. Right. But that the lyrical talent was still there. And, um, this album is basically a new wave tour de force. This is probably the, this and the first, the debut album by the cars, in my opinion, are the two pinnacle, oh, never mind, and Blondie's parallel lines, for that matter, are like you know the three pinnacle new wave pop records. All came out the same year. Um, the production, the tight, sharp songwriting, um, and some of his best songs are on this album you know so i mean the the cynics would argue all his best songs are on the first two records <laughs> and you could have a yeah. point um i liked armed forces the one that came after this year's model but and the get production happy is, get happy
1: is really good too
0: get happy is really good too with the production on those the sound quality isn't as sharp as the sound quality on this year's model um, yeah, there's a there's a propulsion to the to to uh, the arrangements Um, There's a propulsion to this, to the and the crispness to the sound that Costello has never ever captured since this year's model, and I think he'd be the he'd be the last one to admit it. But put him in a private room to a gun to his head, he'd probably he'd be the first one to admit it though. (laughs) In that regard, you know. Yeah. So so here's here's my take
1: on this year's model. Uh, I hope he paid Steve Neeve. really strong royalties and uh like hooked them up with uh uh millions of dollars for life uh his his keyboards he's he's the star of the record um the attractions wonderful band uh the thomas brothers uh the sound the consistency of those arrangements and like you said the propulsion i'm I'm
0: not, I'm not sure they were brothers though
1: but the Thomases?
0: Yeah, I'm not, I think they're, they're they're the bass player and the drummer. They're both their last names are Thomas. But I'm not 100 percent sure they're uh, brothers. We we may have to do a curmudgeonly investigation there.
1: Yes. Okay. Maybe two guys we'll named we'll Thomas. Do, we'll,
0: do, we'll do it live on air. Fuck it. Let's do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so you do that while I'm bitching. So, <laughs> okay. So the band is great and uh, sounds great too bad they're stuck with a bunch of songs that mostly are insubstantial. Uh, look, oh, radio 3. Some of his ra- best songs. Well, okay, three great songs. Oh, radio radio, pump it up, and this year's girl. Uh, great
0: songs. Chelsea is uh, a great song. Okay, Chelsea uh,
1: Chelsea is great. Chelsea an okay song to me
0: is great. Chelsea's the
1: only decent guitar lick on the entire record. Wow. Uh, yeah, and and that's the thing. That's so good. so here's the thing: Costello clearly was influenced by reggae, sixties garage rock, and Motown. Uh, they're all clear influences. However, uh, this album makes me want to listen to those influences more than this record. Uh, I just you know this to me the songs just you know they they veer between silly and uh trudging and again there is that uh fact that it might as well be the national anthem for incels uh you know given some of the misogyny uh that's on there so i just you know to me it's a really great sounding dull dull ass record with the exception of like i said uh i really think that other than the song that Nick Lowe wrote. (laughs) Uh, What's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding? Uh, Radio Radio is probably his other great masterpiece song. And I I love this year's girl.
0: Other than that, man, The beat is a great song. That's another great riff as well. I love the riff on the beat. Um, no action is not really a riff song, but it's a it's a great album opener. I mean, the best
1: the best riffs are the keyboard, uh, yeah. are the keyboards. Well, no,
0: I agree. I agree. I mean, well, Costello is not a riff guy; he's a songwriter. You know, yeah, um, chief, uh, uh, chief, and f- first and foremost. But um, no, I think the album is is close to perfect as as as, uh, as any a new wave pop record can get. Um, if, if you want to make the argument that Costello went downhill after this. I'll disagree, but I won't disagree too strongly because I do like armed forces. I like get happy and I love trust. Trust is uh, really underrated. It's after yeah. trust. where, are like, yeah, he, he, you know, kind of went down the rabbit hole of, oh, I'm a sophisticated singer songwriter. while snorting lines of cocaine all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you well, well, well,
1: yeah <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> chart was a good record. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the, the best and most important thing he did after 1986 was, uh, produce, uh, uh, uh Paul McCartney record, the one with my brave face on it. Which um, wasn't very good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that song is great. But yeah. Elvis Costello produced that, but after that, and then the best thing he did after that was marry Diana Krall. Hey.
0: Yeah. Hey, he, he also produced the Pogues, Rum, Sodomy he, and the Lash.
1: Yeah. And then he did that awful record with the Roots. Uh, yeah, that
0: was terrible.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was terrible. So anyway, like I said, Elvis Costello, I'm like, "Nah, eh, I I I don't quite get the reverence other than the fact that he he did have the attractions and they're for that one album they were maybe one of the great backing bands and and recorded rock history." Um, I'll give it that. Uh, wonderful sounding record, but
0: boring. Okay, we move on from one hook-laden masterpiece to another that you're not crazy about. Number five, Depeche Mode, Violator. Now, this is one of the landmark albums in electronic pop music. This is this did to Depeche Mode what the Joshua Tree did for U2, what Born in the USA did for Springsteen, um, what I, I guess Pearl Jam 10 did for Pearl Jam, whatever. Anyway, it's the album that really um, they were kind of bubbling underneath the mainstream anyway. This album made them one of the biggest bands in the world. But is it that good of a record? Fuck yeah, it is, man! Any album that has "Personal Jesus" and "Enjoy the Silence," uh, "Enjoy the Silence" being one of the most beautiful love songs ever recorded in the in the history of the twentieth century, uh, really should deserve. And and all the other great songs that are on this deserves its credit. Um, I think Violator is a perfect record. Uh, I think it's bettered only by the album that followed, the 1993 Songs of Faith and Devotion, which is my personal favorite Depeche Mode album. Um, but I think Violator uh, um, deserves all its pro- the props that it gets. I think it's easily one of the best albums of all time, and it's a watershed in electronic music crossing over to the mainstream, easily.
1: And I doesn't. Uh- <laughs> Let, this is another case of like kind of Neil Young's harvest uh, where the hits make the record. Uh, obviously, Personal Jesus, Enjoy the Silence, and my favorite of the songs, Policy of Truth, are all awesome. Uh, the rest of the album, uh, they, they kind of evoke the minimalist uh, electronica that they were going for as far back as 1984, Some Great uh, uh, Reward. Uh, The most annoying thing is the song clean steals the baseline from Pink Floyd sheep, uh, (laughs) which is a little strange, Uh, but again, so, you know, it's like the curse of the handsome guys. I always say that, um, you know, that they, they, they propel and they, they get out there and get more revered than they obviously should. Uh, Yeah. The singles. Yeah. Make the record here. The rest of it again is just all of this sort of, Uh, more blatant Martin Gore, uh, electronic, uh, sort of more truer to their roots, but more boring, uh, way more boring than their roots. So um,
0: yeah, the hits. World World in My Eyes is a great pop song. Sweetest Perfection has this drive to it. This is kind of haunting and, and suspenseful at the same time. Uh, yeah, Halo, Halo is really good. I like that song a lot. That's a great. Yeah, yeah just, Halo is not bad, but it's like littered with pop nuggets. Brilliant songs. All over. Yeah, it, but, it, but none of it
1: has the drive. You said Propulsion. Uh, those three singles, I mean, they blast out of the fucking stereo. I mean, they, they're just life. Uh, to those records. Uh, Like when I, when I hear those songs, I don't picture a band in a studio. I think those songs just live on their own. The rest of it. I don't know. It just, it just pales. It just, it's, it's chasing behind. So three great songs make for a classic. I Uh, never agree with
0: that. Perfect. I said only bettered by the one that followed perfect album. All right. From one perfect album to one that's almost perfect. And that's number six, the American indie rock classic, Pavement, Slanted and Enchanted. Um, Okay, I'll admit, I'm a diehard Pavement fan. This is not my favorite Pavement album. My favorite Pavement album is still um, uh, Bright in the Corners from 1997. And I like Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain a lot. But this album is important because this is the album that ushered in the lo-fi indie rock movement of the 1990s. And for the most part, for the better than for the worse. Because, you know, if he had, without this album, sebado wouldn't have come as close to crossing over. You wouldn't, guided by voices, wouldn't have gotten a record deal <laughs> without, you know, Pavement, you know, uh, breaking through with Slanted and Enchanted. And behind the, the cheap lo-fi production, and behind all that, or yeah, in the, behind all the, the fuzz and the noise, they are the, there are some delectable, perfect, hooky pop songs. And they come one after another, Summer Babe, Trigger Cut, you know, Conduit for Sale, Zurich is Stained, Loretta's Scars, Here's One of Stephen Malkmus's greatest ballads, um, Perfume V, it's just it's one great, brilliant freaking song after another it's a testament how like you can have the shittiest worst production you can imagine and in pavement's case i think this was this was an aesthetic choice i don't think they chose it to be this bad i think i mean they didn't have the money to make a great record but if you listen to their eps and singles before slanted they all had a similar you know a similar sound they, this this was their aesthetic back then and no matter how badly in cheaply produced a record is if you have great top-notch songs you have a great top-notch record and I think this is a is a testament to that it's the, what introduced the world to Malchmus and Pavement and the brilliance of his labyrinth lyrics um yeah I mean it's a classic it, it, it's it's a worshipped classic for a reason slanted you, and enchanted
1: yeah I- i got going to admit, you know, this is curmudgeonly research sometimes pays dividends. Yeah. And uh, I don't have as much animus towards this record as I did uh, a week ago. Uh, that said, the lo-fineness is what always annoyed me about it. Uh, I think that Malcolm's uh, vocals, with the exception of here, which is gorgeous, Um, are too under the mix. I think that it's it's a little too sloppy and messy. Uh, Yes, some of the songs are there, but even Malkmus' that is is still a work in progress. Uh, There are a couple of great melodies, Trigger Cut being one of them, but it was the beginning of a road that led to one of the best albums of the 90s, Bright in the Corners, six years later.
0: Yeah.
1: and so this is the start, but it's a start. And, you know, look, I get, I, I guess I get why pavement is is a thing. Uh, people our age, it kind of spoke to us, especially women. Uh, you know, uh, Malchmas was this oddly a sex symbol. But yeah, but there's, like I said, there's just a lot of near misses. Summer Babe, uh, great. Great riff, great vibe. Uh, melody is not quite there. Conduit um, uh, kind of for sale is a really fun, uh, sticky song.
0: Yeah, but, it, it's, but it's, it's, it's 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 indie arena rock.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically, it's 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 sticky as hell, and uh, seeing it live is a kick. Uh, you know, they they, they they clearly have fun with it. But again, this was they they were undercooked at the time. Uh, the production gets in the way. Uh, there's a couple of songs where you actually strain to figure out what Malchmus is saying, which is not the case because by the time they get even Crooked, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, they, they uh, cured this that the, Malchmus's voice uh, is the strongest uh, feature of the pavement songs, even more than the good music played bad, you know, guitar. Uh, uh, you know that kind of weird uh style that Malcolm spiral stairs had uh so i'm more admiring of this record um there are a few great songs uh on it uh but just just too too undercooked and i guess it started something but people there's still a lot of people like you know the the intelligentsia and the rock critics out there when they do their best of lists, this is the one that always uh, yeah. is, is out front bullshit bright uh, in the corners. Uh, I think one of the five best rock records of the nineties, uh, this one, not so much.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, the undercookedness as you call it, I think that's the point though, that that's part of the point of this record. They were going for that, you know, they were going for that because it really is, a a, uh, um, a backlash against a lot of the really heavily overproduced shit that was going on in the late '80s and the very very early '90s, and this was pavement's you know big middle finger to that. I think I really do believe they intentionally went for this. They really wanted to do this kind of this kind of sound that really harkens back to Malcolm, one of Malcolm's heroes, one of his heroes, Marky e. Smith and the Fall. You know, and yeah. the late 70s, you know, if you listen to a lot of the, the fall, the early fall stuff, sounds a lot like this. It's, it, it has that kind of rough, rough, you know, underproduced style. And I think Malchmus wanted that, you know, him um, he's, he's never been afraid, uh, never been ashamed of his love of Mark e. Smith. So I think this was like his way of emulating that, you know, like a lot of great rock art tradition of rock and roll. You always start off emulating your heroes, right? So, yeah. you know, and this is and this is no exception to that.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's kind of the story of pavement. They started off by emulating their heroes and then by the end of their run, they became heroes, Yeah, Um, you know, and just uh, they became actually truly singular. Yeah. So but this this is where it started. And, you know, I I shrug my shoulders and I've always been puzzled at, you know, and I understand that that's the defense that people make. And you know me; I've always called it good music played badly. Yeah. Uh, but here it's just done really badly, <laughs> <laughs> and too badly yeah. for for my liking.
0: So all right. So from one singular artist to another, number seven album that I love that Chris doesn't. Tori Amos, "Little Earthquakes," from the same year that "Pavement Slanted" album came out, 1992. Now, here's my thing: I'm normally not a fan of the kind of music that Tori Amos does. This is is not my shtick. Um, I like a little more backbone in my music. Um, But Tori Amos, the way I've always described, I mean, she's always been, when she first came out, she was described as kind of a, a Kate Bush wannabe. For me, she takes Kate Bush's stick and improves it in every way possible. Well, that I'll (laughs) agree.
1: That I'll agree with.
0: Yeah. She's a better singer, better songwriter, way better musician, way more compelling music and more interesting and more diverse. Um, And she became more diverse as she went on. But it doesn't take away from what I think is the almost pop perfection of Little Earthquakes, which, I mean, in spite of everything that annoys me about this kind of, you know, soft coffee shop pop, uh, the songwriting is just it. The compositions are exquisite. The singing is impeccable. The musicianship, of course, is great. Everyone knows Tori Amos can rip it on the piano. Um, But it's it's just an amazing... I'm just a sucker for great pop songs. And there are some great freaking pop songs with really compelling and at times, sometimes a little disturbing lyrics. And that's one of the the patent hallmarks of Tori Amos' career is out she's like well when she was good she's not so good anymore her her, her recent music is terrible but like in her, in her hot streak in the 1990s it was beautifully sung lyrics real but like with a very subtle understated menace behind them and she would explore that in later albums more more explicitly but you hear that the, the germination of that in this album um and in here but it's still it's it's the beauty that carries through and there's just some beautiful songs that are really well produced that have aged well that have stood the test of time and she's proven to be very influential with a lot of you know contemporary female singer songwriters who all cite tori amos especially that 90s streak that she had uh and has a prime influence and she is that
1: Oh yeah, she's definitely an influence. But here's the thing: she she invented a genre, the hot chick writhing at a piano who wants to damage woman the shit out of you. Uh, <laughs> it gets it gets to be a little much. Uh, Silent all these years and crucify uh, are
0: those are the big hits. Yeah,
1: wonderful, wonderful song again. Uh, can't can't fault the hits, but then from there it just again, it, you know, she. I suppose if I was a pure white woman of that sort of um, background, if if she was kind of like you know uh, a doppelganger for me, and you know I had friends that in high school that were and they loved her, uh, those women loved her, and so maybe I would be a little bit more connected. But you know, after a while, it's just like, ugh. and then I know you love the song Winter. Uh, I don't.
0: It's the <laughs> longest
1: six minutes imaginable. Make it stop. Make it stop. And uh, speak, speaking of uh, women that think they want to damage women the shit out of you, we go to uh, Arturo's eighth artist.
0: Yes, number eight, of my final of my crazy eight, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's debut full-length album, Fever to Tell, from 2003, now the New York scene in the late 90s, early 90s um, was really, really fruitful. Uh, I mean, the Strokes were the band that really broke it open, but you had the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, TV on the Radio, and in my opinion, the best out of them all, LCD Sound System, um, by far. By yeah, far. and and and, and uh, but the Yeah Yeah Yeahs were good. Um, they were they had a unique. Of all the garage rock, that garage rock revival, they had a unique uniqueness to them. Yeah, it was one guitar, one drum kit, a la the White Stripes, just with a you know a real uh, super charismatic, crazy front woman. Oh, not crazy in real life, but just crazy on stage at the time. Um, but the Fever to Tell is a really, really strong. It's not their best album, but it's a great record. I think um, it, it, it's it's. They, they, have, they have unusual instrumentation, true, but they also have an unusual musical style. Um, Karen O, obviously, very, she took her name from Wendy O, you know, the, the punk rock icon from the late 70s, early 80s. But Karen O was more of like a New York art school, art damaged version of that, that you only get from upper middle class people in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But, but she pulls it off. And I think she really did pull it off for a little while um, with Fever to Tell. Fever to Tell is a great record. Um, you have Maps, which is the big hit single from this, uh, probably one of the best, you know, New York art rock ballads ever. Date with the Night, great rock song. Tick, Black Tongue, Why Control? Beautiful. One of the best. One of the best non-Sonic Youth instances of getting noise and feedback and crafting it into a pop song.
1: You know,
0: white control does that excellently. Um, Great album, Fever to tell. Uh, I still think their best album is their one from 2009. It's blitz, which is where they incorporated a lot of like synthesizers and electronics, but like, but their songwriting really got better, but you can hear it here and you can hear it in its most raw form and you can't beat raw rock and roll. And uh, Fever to Tell is just really great, raw art, damaged rock and roll done as well as it can get. Now, Fever to
1: Tell would be a great record if you removed Karen O from the equation.
0: Oh, uh, really?
1: Really love the guitar. Uh, like it starts off strong, rich, uh, great riff. Yeah. Uh, lots of like you said, Y control maps. Uh, there's a lot of really uh, strong guitar and. They're almost in the vein of that Stripes Black Keys kind of, uh, you know, two or three piece uh, kind of uh, uh, riff, bang, riff, bang, but done a little bit more tastefully than those bands. Now, I mean, I hate to say it, but if you put like a not Morrissey, but kind of like an emotive male singer, it would have worked better. Instead, you get a Screamy Mimi who was a phony baloney sex uh, cat. Uh, wild child check. Uh, lots of folks have done this shit better. Uh, the, uh, the big girl on the Cattle nine tails from the gossip way better. Uh, mm-hmm. A- Amy Taylor, who is the best example, uh, of this era and one of the best of all time at that role, I think already, uh, from Amel and Amal and the Sniffers. Uh, but there's just something about it. She, she sings about her sexuality in a really grossly unsexy manner. I remember my old girlfriend when I was in Phoenix, uh, uh, we get halfway through the record and, you know, she she'll had pretty good musical taste, but she, she said, this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard, was, was her comment. I kind of agreed with that. So, but here's the shocking thing and here's the disappointing thing. She plays it straight on the song Modern Romance which is beautiful and a really great song and the best song on the record, in my opinion, even better than maps where she actually like sings, uh, with real heart and without the gimmickry. So, uh, yeah, look back in the day, the most intriguing thing about her is that she could sing while she was chugging a beer. Uh, so, E, you know, I I can, that's what I'm saying. Karen ruins what otherwise would have been a great record. That's my take.
0: On this episode, Chris and I squared off over albums we loved and the other didn't feel the same way about. However, for the next episode... Chris and I will be in alignment as we present and argue the cases for the 10 most definitively overrated albums of all time. Enough said. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at at curmudgeon pod. Okay, so now we go to the albums. Eight. crazy eight albums that chris loves and that i don't love now looking through these lists it's a wide range some of them i actually like but don't like as much some of them i think are just okay and some of them i think flat out suck so we're gonna go with the first one and again chronological order and we're gonna start in the summer of love 1967 gotcha a band love Yes, and
1: and the fun part here is that as we go down the list, uh, Artie's uh, level of Arturo's level of hate will will <laughs> rise and rise and rise. So yes, we are starting with love's forever changes, and hey, I love this record. Uh, so this is the LA take on the psychedelic summer of love in 1967. Uh, Brought to you by the brilliant, eccentric, and we come to find out later, schizophrenic mind of Arthur Lee. Uh, Arthur Lee was, uh, he wasn't Hendrix. He was more of a sort of a gentle, folky, psychedelic, uh, charismatic black guy doing white white music. Uh, He was, I that there's this mysterious quality. What he did is he took the psychedelia of the era with some of, you know, there were, uh, the themes of, uh, immortality and, uh, some snark and some political commentary and a lot of this fear of the nuclear end, but he puts a real poignancy, uh, into it. Even some of the the love, uh, uh, songs that go into it, a surprising poignancy and also a surprising, uh, musical, uh, variety uh so you've got your i mean the most uh the most famous uh, song on on it uh, he actually co-wrote uh, uh alone again or um which you know has this uh almost uh you could if, if they didn't invent it it would be self-parody uh because you know with this uh, it's kind of acoustic uh dramatic thing and then they managed to get horns in there too so it's almost kind of like this uh almost uh, like restaurant uh, phony Mexican pop, but they make it work. Again, that's one of the themes of this record is that they do these sort of uh, uh, kind of L.A. schmaltzy styles done through a psychedelic uh, looking glass, but it works because of Arthur Lee's talent and fantastic singer. Uh, and again, with a lot of range. So you've got songs like The Daily Planet, which somewhere on there, Neil Young, I believe, plays acoustic guitar on, uh, which is more sort of a uh, a folk rock song. Uh, to me, one of the highlights of the record. Well, and more again, uh, really uh, dark but beautiful ballad. Old Man is a terrific little folk uh, psychedelic uh, ditty, and then a song that has no business working other than the fact that Arthur Lee was a musical genius. Mm-hmm. And again, the poignant arrangement, it, this is called the Red Telephone, which is the whole, the world is about to blow up in a nuclear holocaust. And it's almost got this drama uh, going to it. And uh, almost it borrows from the San Francisco garage psychedelia uh, in its in its jangly uh, keyboards, mm-hmm. but it works. So that's the theme of it. A uh, psychedelic swap, but beautiful, poignant, and Arthur Lee makes it work. Uh, sadly, uh, after this, he kind of deteriorated and uh, really struggled uh, for most of the rest of his life. So uh, that's what forever changes.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't hate this record at all. In fact, I like the album. I think it's a good, I think it's a really good, strong record. I don't. I wouldn't call it psychedelic at all. There's, there's almost no psychedelia on this record. Um, I wouldn't call it that. But I do think it's overrated um, for two reasons particular. Number one, for as good of a singer as Arthur Lee is, he's not a particularly great lyricist. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, live and let live and the snot has caked against my no pants. pants yeah yeah come on dude when you open a song with that lyric i mean it may it may it may be something that you were inspired by when you woke up in the morning with a hangover but it doesn't really translate well to a pop song you know and he's got some other awkward vocal not his voice in particular but vocal phrasings and some were and some lyrical passages that he tries to Pack way too many words in one line, and it doesn't work very well. And the lyrics themselves are kind of cheesy and kind of corny. Like he could have used a little more. Like his buddy was Jimi Hendrix. He was he was buddies with Hendrix, and they were like you know you know the you know two black American rockers in an overwhelmingly white rocker scene, and yes. they took they took divergent paths. Um, Arthur Lee could have used a little bit of Hendrix's celestial vision when it came to lyric writing. Um, the other reason I think this album is overrated is I think the production works in some songs and doesn't work in others. Um, I think old man is corny as shit. (laughs) Um, I think the red telephone is, you say it works. I don't think it works at all. Um, but I do like alone again, or, uh, I do like a house is not a motel. That's great. And Morrigan is actually quite a beautiful song. Um, so there are some great stuff in here. But I think the lyrics, the, the shitty lyrics bogs it down. I think the production's a little too schmaltzy for my taste because I'm not a fan of that kind of L.A. production shit. It's just never been my thing. Um, and But it is a really good record. It is a really good record. But I think it's colossally overrated. It is not one of the 100 greatest albums of all time. If you want to call it maybe 300, okay, I'll go with you there. Um, but even then, like even coming out of LA during this era, I think there are albums that are way better. I think the birds to have at least three albums in their pocket from this era that are better than forever changes. Um, I think the Doors had a couple that were better. Um, but anyway, yeah, you know, it's an album I like, but I don't love for the, for the reasons that I gave. And now yes. we'll give over, we'll give over to the album number two, which I like significantly less. Chris, yes, and, two.
1: and uh, this album, uh, the reverence really comes from 17 year old me, and yeah, for 17 year olds, Pink Floyd's The Wall is like wonderful because it has grandeur, it has statements, it has uh, lead guitar on loan from God." All it of has those things.
0: It's stupid grandeur and stupid statements. Okay. <laughs>
1: Okay. So, so, so says you. Now, uh, this was the culmination of Roger Waters had this, uh, uh this strand that went through all of his seventies work. Uh, rockstar veers into madness that somehow veers into fascism. Uh, okay, whatever. Uh, but, uh, it builds, uh, I mean, the height of it is the album before this, Animals. I mean, that's the best of the records. But here on the wall, uh, it works wonderfully because you get the Roger Waters uh, persona, which was becoming almost like this creepy speak-sing uh, thing with uh, David Gilmore's finest hour as a hooksmith and as a songwriter and uh, a beautiful and just dynamic lead guitar playing through all of this. Uh, oh, yeah.
0: it's, Gilmore saves the wall, in my opinion. He saves the album.
1: Yeah, well, he to me he drives the wall. But the Roger Waters stuff is wonderful too. You know, one of, one of my turns, uh, you know, and uh, uh, Mother, which is one of my favorite, if my my favorite Pink Floyd song. Period uh, is is got a real a uh, real pathos to it. And there's a depth of feeling uh, to that. Um, and it's, it's the best uh, marriage of uh, Waters, uh, eccentricities and uh, Gilmore's uh, m- musical, uh, pretty uh, and hooky sensibilities. Uh, it really, really works. Uh, You know, the one the one thing where it threatens to just completely fall apart is is uh, all the stuff about the worms and the trial. And like the last quarter of the record, it gets a little goofy. But uh, ultimately, uh, I love The Wall. Uh, It was one of my favorite albums. Uh, It was one of my favorite albums until about uh, 2000. uh, You know, the first 20, 21 years of my life. I loved it in college. I don't listen to it quite as much now, but it's one of those records that deserves uh, its place uh, in the uh, all-time rock pantheon,
0: in my opinion. All right. Um, this album to me is, hands down, maybe, okay, maybe not the most, definitely top five most overrated albums of all time for me. Um, I find it borderline offensive, <laughs> uh, I mean, for these reasons, the germination of this album came about in a concert when Pink Floyd were touring for Animals, and they were uh, playing a stadium in France, I think, or somewhere somewhere in Europe. And Roger, the Pink Floyd, were playing, and some fans in the audience, you know, drunk and rowdy, having a good time, going yeah, 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 doing all that shit. And apparently, Waters, you know, being the prima donna. Asshole that he always has been and continues to be, uh, found offense with that. He thought it was wrong, so he spit into the crowd, hated it. And then uh, when the band the band finished her set, and he left off the stage, and he was huffing and puffing and all pissy about it, and he decided to write a concept album about how fans worship rock stars like they were fascist dictators, and. What I find offensive is that the concept of the album is about rock stardom going out of control and how fans, how they view rock stars. And then, well, no, let, let me backtrack. Let me backtrack. What it is, is, is on one part, it's that. The concept is that. It's him just whining and bitching about being famous, okay, which is annoying enough as it is. Okay, But he's whining and bitching about being famous and being a rock star. And then on the other hand, it's it's an album with a concept of him moaning and groaning over the loss of his father and having an overprotective mother. Now, I agree, I can kind of identify with that, of course. But he had the audacity to take that element, the child abandoned by the father and having a possessive mother, and then growing up to be a pompous rock star who desires attention and then dresses up like adolf hitler as in the movie yeah that's just just fucking bad taste offensive and roger waters has always been in bad taste and uh as far as some of his political not all but some of his political views um it's really distasteful i think it's overwrought the concept is overwrought and you know it's overwrought because it falls apart two-thirds of the way through The, the story just falls apart <laughs> there's yeah. really not much of a resolution he's trying to he's trying to combine the metaphysical with the physical and trying to blur the lines between them and it just comes across as hokey um to so the concept i think is offensive and it's flimsy and it's weak and number 2 musically there aren't really enough real songs throughout the two discs i think if you get like you can really make an incredible conceptual six or seven song ep <laughs> out of the best stuff of the wall you know and not have all the concept uh, uh the 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 concept pieces the tracks that, that that push the story along these like one to two minute snippets of word of, of, of spoken word stuff or sounds or soundscapes that are just like story pieces and to me it just detracts from the overall story because which is not just shame because there isn't much of a story and it's and whatever's left of there is if it's a story is pretty offensive and tough to swallow so anyway we go
1: from one form of of drama uh uh caught on record
0: to another uh yes
1: peter gabriel so
0: yeah uh, this is this is the number three album on your crazy eight list
1: Yes. From 1986, a wonderful record to me. Um, It's got, there's a, there's a hopefulness to it. There's a romance to it. Uh, There's just a lot of uh, great. um, It's one of these albums where uh, you're in the mid eighties and the synthesizers are all the range and you know the white boys are figuring out how to use the electronic drums to to good effect and and Peter Gabriel does this marvelously with these uh wonderfully dramatic hopeful uh romantic like i said uh red rain uh and uh in your eyes obviously memorialized uh forevermore by say anything uh and uh like yeah, you know, some of the don't give up, which is the only Kate Bush uh, moment I can stand, and, and then even at the end, um, where you you get uh, some of the the, the uh, almost spoken word thing with Laurie Anderson, uh, which uh, I I really think works. And so to me, it's a damn near perfect record. Uh, you know, Sledgehammer is a little bit of a curveball compared to the rest of it, but it's still an it's still a kick ass single and uh one of the better uh radio ready singles of, of that era uh peter gabriel very smart uh incredibly talented and uh this was his finest uh hour uh this was another album that f- actually fourteen year old me obsessed over but i recently revisited a couple of years ago and it holds up at age well
0: yeah yeah to me this album hasn't aged well. And the reason is it suffers from what I call 80s-itis, you know? <laughs> and that is this, uh, this syndrome throughout the decade that uh, in, the, in the music industry where bands or artists would come out with albums of like two or three amazing songs, great singles, and the rest of the album is filler. And to me, this is a classic example of that. Another classic example is Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. Um, but that's another that's for, that's another commentary for another story. Um, but here, like Sledgehammer, which is really, yeah, you're right. It's an outlier for the sound of this album. Uh, in Your Eyes, Big Time. Those are the three big singles. All three amazing songs. Great singles. Some of the best songs, Peter Gabriel. one of the best pop songs, Peter Gabriel ever wrote. But the rest of the record to me is just new age wallpaper music. You know, it's just, it's just continuously slow. It's incessantly somber. Um, it's just plodding and meandering and it doesn't have the tightness. And, and and like, like, like with you and Violator is with me. And so, you know, these three, these three amazing songs that pop out of the speakers and the rest of the record is just miasma. <laughs> and, then, and, and, and and it has Kate Bush on it, which makes it worse. So you know,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if you folks haven't figured out that the, one, one of uh, the goals of the Curmudgeon Rock Report is to shit on Kate Bush uh, wherever and whenever possible. Sorry, and her Kate. fans. <laughs> so, sorry, Kate, but fuck you
0: so Although, i mean i've heard she's a very nice lovely person as a human being oh i'm, I'm, sure, sure. She's a, I'm sure she's a wonderful human being a nice and maybe nice we can lady have her on as a it. guest
1: you know we can go point counterpoint, and, and she can charm the shit out of us so come on kate come
0: on. as long so, as long as long as she'll talk about anything but her music she's welcome on the show
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go all
0: right so, so what's now, next
1: We go to the least Peter Gabriel thing imaginable. (laughs) Number four. Yes. Uh, We talk about Metallica's uh, Black Album, self-titled record uh, that has become known as the Black Album. I love this album. Uh, Is it Metallica's best record? No, but it was a statement. And this was Metallica deciding that, one, they were going to get a real producer, that could capture the power and just the pure, just um, uh, what what would you call it? Just the force of what they were doing as a speed metal act. Yeah. Uh, all those years that, you know, through a series of mostly badly produced records that were mostly recorded in Denmark. Uh, yeah. That just, just didn't hit. Uh, but they made a commitment to, uh, building songs on one riff that were, like, really work. I guess this pop songs. I guess this is pop Metallica, but it's tight Metallica. Now, before this, obviously, you think of the more uh, Cliff Burton inspired symphonic uh, touches. You know the Kurt Hammett, the uh, the long beautiful solo on Master of Puppets, uh, Orion. Uh, You know, you would think of For Whom the Bell Tolls, where the riff is actually a bass riff. And, you know, you think of some of those uh, longer, uh, more sort of athletic, really fast uh, songs, Ride the Lightning, which is probably my favorite Metallica song uh, in the catalog. But here you get Enter Sandman, which has one of the great riffs in the history of riffology. Yeah, uh, and just boom, 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 and just sounds wonderful, uh, great tone, and it just rides that same riff, and it does that over and over and over through the record, and just wonderful stuff. Holier than thou, uh, nothing else matters, which is a wonderful ballad, uh, and you, you get uh, you know, some of uh, some of you know for, for wherever I may roam. Uh, All of that stuff. It's just a really strong, focused, tight uh, record that just has this boom and actual bass. Jason Newstead is a star of this record. Uh, And uh, it's also, I think, uh, they kind of allowed uh, Kirk Hammett to actually jam for a change as opposed to doing a million notes that you might as well be sitting and looking at a, a music chart. He actually yeah. jams here, and he's better for it. So love this album, and uh, uh, always been a big fan of it. I listen to it several times a year still, To, uh, to and I, I find new things to enjoy every time I listen to it.
0: Yeah, um, I'll, I'll refer to Kirk Hammett himself uh, when uh, talking about this album a few years ago in an issue of Mojo. He described it as the black... Master of Puppets, Ride the Lightning, uh, those are great albums. Black Album is an album that has some great songs. And that's exactly it. Uh, I think this album is um, basically suffers from 80s itis, <laughs> uh, but in, in the early 90s. Uh, <laughs> the, the singles, yeah. the singles from this album, the, the big five, Enter Sandman, Sad But True, Unforgiven, um, Wherever I May Roam, uh, what's the other big one? Uh, Nothing else matters, like you mentioned. Those are five of the greatest songs in Metallica's entire discography. Um, this would have been the greatest EP ever made, you know? Know. but they had to. They, they they had to put great sounding, like you said, wonderful production, but great sounding turds like of Wolf and Man and uh, Oh, I know, like that song through the Never. Through the never, oh,
1: the, and I I actually (laughs) like that song. The bridge on that song is awesome.
0: Uh, From After Nothing Else Matters, the album songwriting wise just falls apart. There's no no interesting riffs. Hetfield's vocals are at their most exaggerated and spinal tap ish, Um, and it's just kind of like. The lyrically it's kind of cliche Metallica, my friend of misery. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, yeah. <laughs> haven't, haven't they done this shit already?
1: You yeah. The, the only two real misfires are don't tread on me and my friend of misery. Yeah. Uh, but th- those are forgivable sins because the rest of it is just so strong and so consistent. So consistent. Now yeah. we go from uh, probably maybe the biggest mongoloid on this record uh, yeah. number, to, number, to
0: number five, Moby.
1: Yeah, to the biggest wuss on this record uh, on this list, uh, Moby. Well, James Hetfield and Moby have uh, one thing in common: they're both insufferable assholes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Moby is like this self serious, you know, uh, East Village creature. But I never liked Moby. Uh, I thought Moby okay, fine, maybe he was a good DJ, and he was one of those EDM stars that EDM people liked, and I never liked EDM people. But Moby was also a very, very smart uh, consumer of samples. And in the late 90s, he became familiar with the work of Alan Lomax, uh, who is, you know, one of the most important archivists, uh, musical archivists in history, where he, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, went around capturing. Uh, he did these vocal recordings of these black gospel and uh, blues and early R&B uh, singers, and and had all you know this archive of these clips that he of these recordings. Moby took some of these and uh, built songs around them, and it works amazingly well on the album play. Uh, Arturo can tell you, I played this album over and over and over and over and over again for a year. Uh, Moby plays a, a lot on this album. There's a pop sensibility to it. Even the ambience stuff works. And it's because he's got these really compelling uh, vocal samples. Now, this is a theme. Uh, this kind of kicks off an era of uh, vocal Sampling being the backbone of electronic and hip hop songs. Uh, And it was just an unusual kind of record. Now, granted, you know, Moby, because he was a fucking asshole and an egomaniac, uh, decided on his next record he actually was going to be the star of the show and actually try to play all the instruments and, like, write, like, glam pop songs. And it failed miserably. But for a moment in time, he, uh, showed his true genius as a studio guy, uh, as an EDM artist and as a sampler by bringing Alan Lomax, uh, out of obscurity and into the mainstream and uh, more power to him for doing that. I love play.
0: Yeah. Um, I much prefer the Alan Lomax recordings on their own without hmm. Moby, without Moby putting his boring ass beats and stupid piano shit on it. I've I've never liked Moby's music. I've never liked... I, I, I like techno. I like 90s techno. Moby's my least favorite figure in 90s techno. And I think the shit he did with plays is, is just... I find it very bland and kind of subdued. I think the... Believe it or not, the, the original Lomax recordings actually have more energy and propulsion to them than what Moby added to it. Moby just made it into cocktail lounge music. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it, just, it just you know East South uh, Lower East Side Manhattan cocktail lounge music, and uh, for you know for like people of that era, and that's what it was. And I, I I was living in New York when Moby's play came out. Didn't like it then. Didn't like it. Don't like it now. Haven't liked it since. It's just like I said. It, it's 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 you know cocktail hipster cocktail lounge music, exploiting you know you know real American roots music. No, yeah.
1: well, 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 well. That's the thing. It, well, I, I, of course, I, I would argue that the second uh, Massive Attack record uh, uh, suffers from uh, Cocktail Lounge. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Ness, on, on, honestly, most,
0: most most Massive Attack music, not named the Mezzanine album, is like that. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, pretty pretty much. But play, I mean, it's to me, it's got more energy uh than that and again i just there's a lot of good musical ideas and i think it inspired like porcelain is a great song um yeah and something that i don't think anybody in in the world thought moby was even capable of uh at at that point yeah for sure
0: yeah yeah you you said to hell with moby let's move on to the next one so number six another band i really fucking hate
1: yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're descending into Arturo's uh, truest ire as we go down this list. And let's get started with The Flaming Lips, The Soft Bulletin. Uh, I really think it's one of the best albums of the 90s. Uh, I think it belongs, you know, there's a reasonable argument to say it belongs in, in the top 250 albums ever made. Um, incredible stuff. Uh, once you realize what the concept is, which is uh, uh, Wayne Coyne uh, singing about and writing about the death of his father, the slow death of his father uh, from cancer, and so that gives uh, weight to songs like "A Spoonful" weighs a ton and "Feeling Yourself Disintegrate," which has one of the most beautiful uh, guitar solos, uh, guitar solos I've ever heard. Uh, and it's one of those albums. The older I get, uh, the more poignant I think that that album grows. Uh, I think uh, it it it's, it's as mature as the Flaming Lips get. You know, folks that listen to this podcast will know they're one of the goofiest groups in history. But that was a mature, uh, poignant, um, in some ways dark and oddly hopeful uh you know, alternatively hopeful and mournful flaming lips uh even a song like bugs which ostensibly is a throwaway is a really great throwaway now i know what arturo is going to say that the first time i heard it i laughed because it does sound like soap opera music so you know so you know the soap opera music uh it just really once you get past that, and you realize that there's a purpose to the big drums and the uh, the string sounding synths, it it really matches the mood. Uh, this is one of those albums where the the music matches the mood masterfully, and so uh, really, I think a masterpiece. The Soft Bulletin from the Flaming Lips.
0: Yeah, I mean, I appreciate Wayne Coyne's uh, sentiment. You know, regarding his father's death death from cancer and him dealing with it, and yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard thing for people to deal with in life when you're losing loved ones. Um, like uh, you know, my wife's father has cancer now. Sorry to uh, hear. It. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, um, I think I've another friend of mine here in Korea is, has a relative dying of cancer. But man, why does it have to end up? Why does the expression of the grief have to end up being in the most unlistenably schmaltzy, corny ass, overly sentimental slop drop of shit that has ever come out? I mean, good God, does it have to be this freaking corny? You know, Um, like I said, the the soap opera music complaint that I have uh, for the track one on the Soft Bulletin still remains I still can't listen to it without wanting to turn it off um, and, but it has an
1: amazing lyric and yeah, uh, if you really sure. listen to it and you get into the aesthetic of it, it it's it's art
0: I will admit Waiting for Superman is a good song. I'll give you that. That may be the one the one shining pearl in the flaming lips otherwise steaming pile of shit that they call a discography. Um, Waiting for Superman's a great song and Bugs is a nice little pop song. Probably should have been on the album. I know it was an outtake, but overall, I don't like the production. Uh, I'm not a fan of Dave Fridman's productions, uh, style at all, except for one instance. And that's in Slater Kinney's The Woods. Um, but I, I don't like him as a producer. I'd never liked the Flaming Lips music. I find them a bit phony, corny, overly sentimental and trite. Um, with very very few songs serving as as exceptions so i'm not going to go too much into it all i'm going to say is that time has not really been that kind to this record considering how younger generation of rock music fans have kind of forgotten the flaming lips it's only a certain generation of a certain era in that late 90s early noughties that loved the lips when they came out but now like there' are no list of any albums of ever greatest greatest albums ever has that album on it. But we'll move on to number seven, another classic New York moment. Because Chris, you and I were living in New York when Moby's play came out, when the Soft Bulletin came out. Now we're going to have number seven, a true New York album.
1: Yeah, uh, this is Jay Z's The Blueprint, which we have talked about at the beginning of this episode. Uh, this album, I think, is amazing. Uh, it When it hit in 2001, for me, it was wonderful because I'm a huge fan and amateur historian of early hip hop and, you know, the four elements, uh, battle rap, the, uh, you know, the reliance on the samples, the, uh, the braggadocio. And then kind of the fun, uh, cold rock party, kind of block party and and kind of goofy, charming love song uh, kind of uh, vibe. Uh, This album uh, did that uh, as well as any New York record that had come out in at least a decade. You have to go back to like the early, like the Jungle Brothers Tribe called Quest Records and maybe even as far back as KRS-One's Boogie Down Production stuff to find an album like this. So that was was wonderful. The other thing that this album is known for is introducing the Kanye West uh, uh, style uh, and Just Blaze is part of this too. Kanye taking the, um, the samples of famous songs and distorting them and uh, building the hooks around vocal samples and Jay-Z riffing off those vocal samples. Now, uh, Kanye would uh, translate this into his own solo career and actually do it better than he does it here, although uh, Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City, which um, uh, samples Bobby Blue Bland and uh, The Takeover, uh, which is uh, a, a sample of uh, The Doors uh, uh, five, 5 to 1. Uh, is just, I mean, just some extraordinary stuff. And again, as a battle rapper, uh, Jay-Z was never better at this. It's one of the best battle rap albums I think ever made. Uh, right up there with LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out. Uh, just, I love it. It came out on September 11, 2001. And it was perfect because it was a celebration of everything that made New York hi- uh, hip hop uh, so special. And so that's, that's my... Uh, Take on on this album The Blueprint
0: Yeah my take on this Is really more of a take On Jay-Z's career Um, If I had to Create a Mount Rushmore Of overrated hip-hop artists Jay-Z would be the first person I would put there Um, Him Actually no Puff Daddy would be the first person Second would be Jay-Z And maybe I might even put Kanye there Even though I have a love and hate relationship with Kanye
1: 50 cent cent.
0: yeah that's a good one yeah you're right about that but anyway let me get back to Jay-Z um Jay-Z the reason I think he's 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 ridiculously overall ridiculously overrated is because he helped shepherd in hip-hop's shitty phase like the the shallow vapid money cash hose, booty shaking nothing but you know strip bar hip-hop music Jay-Z helped usher that in Him and Puff Daddy The two of them together But Jay-Z I think Was a worse offender of it Because he just became More popular And I always find I always found Jay-Z's brand of hip-hop Just unlistenable Insufferable Sometimes offensive And just It's just You know He's kind of like The Gene Simmons Of hip-hop In which he's just Unabashedly capitalist (laughs) And it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if you were a Republican, because right, of yeah. our, you know of all this, and I, I that's why I've always disliked. I dislike. I'm sure he's a nice person as a human being. If you get to know him, but his music is shallow and vapid. What he represents in hip hop is all that's bad and shallow and vapid. Um, people like him are the reason why Black Star emerged in '98. You know, people like him is why you had the alternative. Hip hop movement of the early noughts. Yeah. People like uh, Jurassic 5 and Aesop rock and shit like that. Common. Yeah. And common. I mean, those were the antidotes to Jay Z. So when I say the blueprint is overrated as hell, yeah, I do think it's overrated as hell because I think, I don't think the beats are anywhere near as good as a lot of people think they are. I think it's kind of, yeah, I acknowledge he's a good rapper, he's got good flow. He's got good lyrics when he wants to be a good lyricist, but usually he's just, you know, bragging about his diamonds and jewels and his money. Fuck him. Fuck that. And uh, I don't like that. And I I think this album is overrated. I don't like I don't like what Kanye did with this record. Kanye did much better work later on after this album. Um, And even with Kanye, to me, Kanye is like hit and miss. But that's another discussion. Yeah. Uh but yeah, but 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 Jay-Z to me is the epitome of everything that went wrong with hip-hop. Uh he marks the point where hip-hop lost its soul and it's had a hard time trying to get it back since. There've been some moments, but not many. Um, yeah. uh and 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 I blame Jay-Z and and Puff Daddy for that. I mean, look, no- normally
1: I would agree with you, uh but there were three instances where Jay-Z uh kind of Eschewed that uh, Reasonable Doubt, The Blueprint And uh, The Black Album On on those records he, he plays it straight There's very little of what you're talking about On The Blueprint especially That's more of a straightforward uh, There's some bi- Biographical stuff on that And he's going after Nas He's going after Mob Deep uh, He's talking up New York He's got the song Girls, Girls, Girls Which is pretty much an, an homage I mean, there's a reason that he's got Bismarky and uh, Q-Tip uh, as two of the backup singers uh, on that, um, and so you know he's playing straight. It reasonable Doubt is one of the best records about the um, uh, about the emotional uh, baggage of, of being in in the drug game. Uh, so he, ha- you know, like I said, he shut that off for his best work, uh, which he, he does here.
0: Yeah. I, his legacy for me is something, ugh, it's a damning legacy for, for someone who's a, a, a fan of hardcore hip hop, you know, uh, that's not hardcore. That's softcore. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and speaking of softcore, core, yeah, or garage rock coming up. Number eight.
1: Yes, as my uh, old friend and current writer for Rolling Stone, uh, Brian Hyatt, calls him. Maybe the last band that will ever be made up of five guys from Manhattan, as far as rock stars. Uh, <laughs> Could be very well true. <laughs> and we're talking about the Strokes. Uh, and uh, those of us our age will remember 20 years ago, Strokes mania was a thing. And then Williamsburg became a thing for better or worse. But hey, at least we got uh, the DFA and uh, LCD sound system out of it. So that's a pretty good legacy to have. Uh, The Strokes, is this it? Marvelous record. Um, Yes, I know Arturo is going to say that uh, it's influenced by Lou Reed and the Stooges. Of course, he'll say that it's uh, worse than uh, inspired uh, by it. But I just think Julian Casablanca's was a really... Uh, Fantastic songwriter and singer, uh, you know, sort of really compelling bratty uh, lyrics about his uh, romantic entanglements and his uh, over partying and his uh, flirtations with dangers, such as uh, in Barely, Barely Illegal uh, or uh, New York City Cops, which was actually cut from the American version of this record uh, because of uh, 9-11. Uh, the reason I like this record, though, and the reason I like the strokes in, in general uh, would be Albert Hammond Jr. and Nick Valenti. Uh, their, the guitar interplay uh, that these guys did was extraordinary. And then when you mix it with Casablanca's chops as a songwriter and a singer, there was a real allure and uh, a surprising sexiness uh, to them. Yeah, I mean, look, they admit that last night was a ripoff of American uh, Girl. American to, Girl, yeah. To, to, uh, to the point where Petty actually liked the song and let him off the hook, <laughs> um, which, which yeah. is which is kind of funny. But uh, and He so- liked he like, he
0: like Danny California, too. So he let, he let the chili peppers off the hook.
1: <laughs> yeah but but he didn't let Sam Smith off the hook because uh,
0: yeah, he thought Sam Smith sucked <laughs> yeah
1: yeah because Sam Smith so I won't back down so he did sue he did sue Sam Smith and get his royalties there but uh, so yeah look the strokes they, they, they were their influences on their on their sleeves but they did kind of they really you know at that point they really were for a moment in time the most exciting rock band to come along. Uh, since, you know, the early nineties, cause you know, you went through that period where grunge died and boy band stuff came up. And so now you had this sort of revival of the sort of, uh, nitty gritty true rock as done by five rich guys, you know, five rich, you know, pretty boy, uh, hot guys from, <laughs> from Manhattan who were all drunks and on drugs and all that, but whatever. Uh, but is this it? I think deserves the, deserves the hype. It's, it's certainly, belongs on a list of one of the best debut records of all time, which if you look in our catalog, uh, it is one of our one and dunners. Uh, but, you know, hey, I love it. And
0: hey, Arturo, I guess that means that you don't. Here's what I'm going to say. Um, in January 2001, The Strokes released their first missile into the world. It was a three-song EP called The Modern Age, The Modern Age EP. And it contained three songs that would end up being re-recorded and re-released on their debut album, Is This It, later in September of that year. But in January of 01, I think it was Rough Trade Records um, released this EP that had three songs. The Modern Age, Last Night, very different version from the version that became a hit, and Barely Legal.
1: Which was, a, which was much different than the one on the record. Yeah. Right,
0: right. And that EP, that three song EP, is what started the hype, the big strokes, uh, music critic, you know, ass kissing hype.
1: Yeah, and as, as it should have, because the version of Barely Legal on that thing is incredible.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to get to that. I'm glad you mentioned that. The EP, the three song EP of uh, the, uh, uh, the modern age EP, is really, really, really freaking good. It's really good. I understand why the hype was there. The version of the modern age is much better than the version on Is Is This It. I agree. Uh, It's much faster. It's harder. The version on Is This It is way too plodding and slow. Um, I like the version of Last Night on the EP more than the version on the album. I do too. The version version on the modern age is more raw. Um, It has more of a kick to it. And uh, uh, the intro doesn't last as long. Um, Casablanca's vocals come way early, and not way early, but by like just just re, just like, like like a measure earlier, and it makes all the difference. And he sings it with way more passion oh, than yeah. on the version I mean, on this. It's his very list raw.
1: You can tell it's a first take vocal.
0: Yeah, um, barely legal. I like you, Chris. I like the version on the EP, the Modern Age EP, more. Uh, first of all, the guitar solo on the on the EP version of Barely Legal blows away the version on is this it that's just a monstrous feral guitar solo by albert hammond that you have never heard him come close to that since in no strokes release since has he come as bombastic with his guitar solo as he is on barely legal on the modern age ep so if you listen to the modern age ep one of the greatest rock and roll eps ever i will give it that like wow this is a really great young band damn yeah okay and then they re-recorded those songs and put in a whole f- a bunch of others and the reason why i don't like is this it uh, is three reasons number one the versions on the modern age ep were done worse
1: <laughs> yeah they, they
0: made them they made them worse on the actual studio album i don't like the which leads me to what to why i don't like them I'm not a fan of the production on "Is This It." I think it's way too muffled. It's way too subdued. It doesn't have that grab you by the balls, grab you by the throat intensity that the modern age EP had. Um, and I think the overall songwriting on the modern on the, on "Is This It." Is lacking because the songs are very monotonous and very same sounding. They all kind of have that jing, <coughs> jing, 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 jing. They all sound like last night in the modern age, you know. And so the monotony and the same-sounding and the and the weakness of the production is what leads me to say that is this it is incredibly overrated. Um, it falls way short of the expectations, in my opinion, brought up by the modern age EP. I actually think their second album, "Room on Fire" from 2003, is a much better record. Uh, it's a better production stylistically. It's more varied. You have elements of R and B and reggae and f- shades of funk yeah. on "Is yeah. on on Room on Fire." And I think the guitar, the guitar solos and the guitar riffs are better on "Room on Fire." I remember I have this book by Lizzie Goodman. It's right behind me there. Uh, meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001 to 2011. It's an oral history of the New York rock scene. And they talk to many members of The Strokes and other you know uh, New York music scene insiders, you know, musicians, uh, producers, blah, blah, blah. And almost to a man and woman, they all say Room on Fire is the better album. And the modern AGP is better. I don't know why is this it gets all the acclaim. The first EP the Strokes came out with was better, better, better production, better uh, intensity and energy on the recordings. And Room on Fire, which came two years later, was a better album. And they're all like, like they take two pages into this chapter going into like, why did this album get the big thing? It was really the next one that was better.
1: Yeah, well, I mean,
0: that's, that's where I stand on is this it and why I think it's overrated.
1: Yeah. And look, I mean, I think it's just, it is just, is a strong record. Uh, I actually think their best record is First Impressions of Earth. Oh, that uh,
0: sucks. That's a piece of crap. Uh, <laughs> s- s-
1: says you, Say that's, that's you a thought. thrilling record because that's really that's Casablanca's really coming out. into his I mean, own and not being derivative. And really, again, great, uh, uh, like kind of like almost, those, almost um, uh, wild guitar wild. work uh, out of those guys. Uh but yeah, I mean, look, you're right. I mean, is is this it uh compared to the Modern Age? Yeah, it was a step down, but it's still a it's still a fantastic record. Hard to
0: explain is the best song uh on uh is this it. See, I I think it's a good song. I wish it was produced better. I wish it, I wish they get rid, get rid of the electronic click drum track and have a real drummer on there, you know, yeah. and make it sound live in the room like the Modern Age EP. <laughs> yeah
1: you know yeah, yeah. it's yeah so, so like i said i mean i i get why people uh were disappointed on it like i said uh room on fire uh with reptilia uh that's probably the best guitar uh work that they ever did on a song yeah uh, I'll, I'll give it that but but again the the whole idea is it's now my love and um And it it was a genuinely exciting record uh, for the time. But I can understand why some people out there, including you, would shit on it. So I love it. You don't. And there concludes our our journey through uh, uh, vivid uh, disagreements.
0: All right. Welcome back. And now we're on our final segment. We are going to do our album recommendations from the vault, older classic albums, or should be classic if they aren't, that we all should uh, and you all as listeners should be familiar with. And our choices for this week's vault classics uh, could not be any more disparate. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is an understatement. Yep, yep. We are going deep into the retresses of our vault, and we are going into some strange-ass corners. And exactly, that, Arturo, yeah. uh, what are you serving up uh, uh, from your own uh, personal lockbox?
0: Okay, what I'm serving up. All right, let's see. This is an album released in 1969 by a certain man named Skip Spence who used to be the member, he was, he was a member, of the 60s San Francisco band Moby Grape, and an album that he released in 69 that has extreme cult love among music geeks and other musicians as well in today's, uh, today's age. So we'll talk a little bit about Skip Spence's "Ore." Okay, now let's see. All right, Skip Spence was one of the three singing songwriting guitarists in, like I said, the 1960s San Francisco band Moby Grape. His one album was, at the time, this, this album being "Or," it was the lowest-selling album in the history of Columbia Records and was deleted deleted from the company's catalog a year after its 1969 release. Now, that's the short of it. The long of it, is one of the reasons why the Curmudgeon Rock Report exists, and this is it, is to shine a light on forgotten albums and artists. And this particular one is one of the most darkly beautiful, oddly hypnotic, deeply moving, forgotten albums of all time. Now, actually, calling it forgotten isn't accurate. Like I said, in the past 20 years, the album, or more, the album has enjoyed a healthy, critical resuscitation. And the admiration of some heavy duty rock stars and figures. But we'll get to that later. Now, Moby Grape, who the hell were Moby Grape? They were one of those bands that coulda, shoulda, woulda, but didn't. <laughs> uh, while the San Francisco bands of the time, you know, like the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, blah, 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 they indulged in way out there acid rock. Moby Grape indulged in short, tight, concise pop rock songs with the Sometimes really strong country rock bent a little before even the birds treaded that territory. Personally, I've never uh, never been a big fan or never heard the greatness in, in The Grape's self-titled debut, even though it's consistently in critics' all-time best-of lists. Although I suspect that will phase out as ensuing generations of music critics. Yeah, it already has blind and blind and deaf to anything that came out before 1990 start to become prominent. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. yeah, that, that really
1: scares me, by the way, these gen Zers that like, look down their nose at anything that's 20 years
0: old. I know. Anyway, I prefer their second album from 1968, "Wow," and the very strong Moby Grape 69. Those are much better records, I think. But anyway, nonetheless, I much prefer Solo Skip Spence to anything Moby Grape ever did. And Solo Skip is just one album, as it's the only album poor, mentally tortured Skip would ever do. Now, for the genesis of this record, for those of you who are as fascinated as I am by 1960s rock music and the counterculture, I highly recommend Joel Selvin's Summer of Love which is a rich and exquisitely written history of the Bay Area music scene in the 1960s. For the record, Jerry Garcia and Stephen King, yes, horror writer Stephen King, praised the book as the definitive chronicle of that era. Anyway, in it, Selvin gives Moby Grape guitarist Jerry Miller's account of when the band was recording uh, in in New York in 1968, of what happened with Mr. Spence. Quote, Skippy changed radically when we were in New York. There were some people there that he met who were into harder drugs and a harder lifestyle and some very weird shit. And so he kind of flew off with those people. Skippy kind of disappeared for a little while. (laughs) Next time we saw him, he had cut off his beard, he was wearing a black leather jacket with his chest hanging out, with some chains, and just sweating like a son of a bitch. (laughs) I don't know what the hell he got a hold of, man, but it just whacked him. And the next thing I know, he took an axe to my door down in the Albert Hotel. They said at the reception area that this this crazy guy had held an axe to the doorman's head, end quote. (laughs) It turns out that Spence was on some really, really strong bad acid Or maybe he just wasn't the kind of person who should have been taking LSD in the first place. (laughs) Regardless, he was committed to New York's Bellevue Hospital for six months under psychiatric care. It was while he was institutionalized that Spence wrote all the songs that would comprise "Or." Now, Moby Grape were on Columbia Records, so after Spence's release from the hospital, Columbia agreed to allow Spence to record a solo album, In the label's recording studio in Nashville. A guy named David Robinson was supposed to produce the record, but instead persuaded Spence, or was persuaded by Spence, we're not really sure, to record all the instruments and produce the album himself, with only a recording engineer on hand. Spence said himself in later interviews that the Nashville sessions were only supposed to be demos. And when he gave the tapes to Robinson, it was with the intent to eventually add overdubs and a fuller production. Instead, Robinson, for reasons unknown, gave the recordings as they were to Columbia. And the label released it as a Skip Spence album in May 1969. (laughs) Yeah. Needless to say, a demo-sounding album recorded on a three-track recorder by a member of the least renowned and least popular band of the San Francisco scene, did not sell well. <laughs> you don't say. As mentioned earlier, it was the lowest selling album in Columbia Records history and was deleted from the catalog a year later. Now, that's a hell of a lot of backstory to the album. As for the album itself and its content, it deserved way, way more than being ignored and placed in the back burner of history. Yeah, it really is kind of a beautiful Uh, for a a three-track demo yeah it's really
1: really beautiful beautiful and almost layered
0: yeah this is clearly the work of a man who's either on the verge of or just came back from a mental collapse and combined with a whole lot of guilt and regret over like a, a life seemingly thrown away as several of the lyrics and the song allude to um musically it veers all over the place from like jaunty folk rock sing-along like the first track little hands to these achingly sad songs of longing and release my favorite song weighted down the prison song to aching pleas for forgiveness and redemption you know broken heart and like these weird ass demented blues spirituals like Mm -hmm. books of moses another one of my favorite songs on the album the album ends bizarrely with a back to back stretch of like raunchy comedy folk, Lawrence of Euphoria. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> this, you know, groovy, spacey, heavily rhythmic proto kraut rock, gray afro. Um, the deep, the cheap, sorry, the it is deep, but the cheap demo ish sound quality of the album actually adds to the, uh, the weirdo aura. In fact, it kind of enhances it to the point of like haunting resonance. Um, Spence was clearly unsettled when he wrote these songs. And this is a very unsettling record. Yet it's unsettling in the odd way that it bears repeated listens. It makes you go like, what the fuck did I just hear? And I have to to hear that again to make sure that what I heard is what I heard. The album does that to you. Um, the album's reputation has skyrocketed to like super cult classic throughout the years. Yeah. Uh, back in 2009, Beck, uh, not Jeff Beck, Beck Beck, uh, did a cover of every song on the album and posted videos of him performing them on his website with assistance from Wilco on several of the songs. Go figure. Yeah, yeah, a decade. I, I, I remember
1: reading about that actually. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. A decade earlier, in 1999, an indie label called uh, Birdman released a tribute album called Or, a tribute to the Skip Spence record, which included songs by uh, renditions of the songs by Tom Waits, Robert Plant, Robin Hitchcock, Beck, again, Greg Dooley from the Afghan Whigs, Mark Lanigan from Screaming Trees, and Mudhoney. Yes. Mud honey. <laughs> yeah. yeah that,
1: that's a pretty wild uh, list of talent. I, yeah. I can just imagine Mark arm taking on skip Spence. Uh,
0: yeah. Anyway, very much a, very much a spiritual forefather, in my opinion, to Daniel Johnston. Um, yeah. Yeah. If skip Spence is known for eternity only for, ore, uh, I think that would be enough. Um, This should be on any respectful and tasteful music critics list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. It's definitely on mine.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, the guy was a mad genius. Emphasis on mad. Uh, You know, Daniel Johnson, I think, did a lot of pretty stuff. I mean, you know, I think he deserved his uh, his props. Uh, coincidentally, I know we talk about Built the Spell all the time, but Built the Spell did a uh, Daniel Johnson's cover record a couple years back that was absolutely fantastic.
0: I, I got to hear that. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, it was it was actually really really great. Uh, yeah, yeah, Skip Spence. There, there was that long illustrious uh, late '60s to early '70s uh, guys uh, who recorded either right before the meltdown, during the meltdown, or decidedly after the meltdown. Uh, there's like a it's basically a subgenre <laughs> if yeah. you think about it and yeah. and, and uh, this is kind of the um like you said the forgotten classic one it's 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 almost the asterisk as compared to like Sid Barrett and Peter Green and uh, some of those other uh some of those other casualties but uh, here uh, again it's it's a beautifully weird uh unsettling in a good way unsettling in the like you said, did I just hear that? Oh yeah, yeah. I did. Oh, and that's yeah. fantastic. So it's it's one of the ultimate growers of that of of that era. So uh, good choice, dude. Uh, yeah, th- 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 yeah. And so now we uh, we go not just like one eighty, maybe we go like four eighty uh, in the, in the other direction. And uh, so, so this album is not necessarily forgotten. Um, there's a lot of people that revile the record. Uh, I am not one of them and there is a uh, what I like to call the gourmet metal set that reveres uh, this record. <laughs> there is a you know the, the, the people that write for and read Kerrang uh, this 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 is their jam. Uh, I'm talking about Slipknot, Iowa. Again, uh, I tend to do the less forgotten records than Arturo does but also albums that are underappreciated and deserve more discussion. Uh, So let's talk about Slipknot's Iowa. I want to slit your throat and fuck the wound. (laughs) Want to push my face and feel the swoon. That is the most famous lyric from Slipknot's 2001 album, Iowa. Yikes. And yet the album is one of the best metal albums of the past 25 years. Uh, yes, I'm serious. Uh, it's considered by the Kerrang! magazine types that I just mentioned as a masterpiece. I don't necessarily think they're wrong. Uh, it's To me, it's an extraordinary listen and one that's a little bit more fun uh, than it has a right to be. Uh, this is uh, art metal coming to you from the dark, gothic, dingy streets of Des Moines, Iowa.
0: Sort of, sort of, <laughs>
1: yeah. These 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 guys were all part of the uh, druggy metal scene, you know. Which I guess, you know, these guys were all. I mean, they wrote a lot of their early songs. The drummer, one of the best drummers of all time, Joey Jordison, I guess, worked at a uh, gas station, and so the couple other founding members used to hang out with him in the gas station while they were writing songs at like three o'clock in the morning. uh so yeah, these these guys were not like silver spooners by any mean. but this album. Dark, brutal, unrelenting, uh, negative, angry, uh, but with a twisted sense of humor and uh, just really just kind of viscerally uh, just wounded uh, type of of record. Uh, They unfairly get lumped in with new Metal, and this is sort of lazy press stuff for you. They kind of hit at the same time that Limp Biscuit and Corn were hitting number one on the charts. And, you know, this new metal thing, you know, the Deftones being another example of this, uh, they just happened to come out at the same time. And they also uh, had a shtick that people saw as new metal because they wore jumpsuits. And they wore these homemade Halloween masks. Uh, Even Corey Taylor and Jordison admit that they stole a lot of their inspiration from Mike Patton and Mr. Bungle. Hmm. Uh, This is not a surprise that uh, they would wear these demented clown masks. They stole that from Mike Patton. But, hey, Mike Patton loves them, too, uh, from what I've read. So the making of Iowa. Uh, They had moved to L.A. at this point. Uh, They had had a successful debut record on Roadrunner Uh, because they were on Roadrunner. Obviously, Ross Robinson, who was the most famous of the new metal uh, producers, is uh, working with them. Uh, They go in the studio to make this record. Uh, They're all fucked up on drugs. Uh, everybody's expecting them to come up with something poppier and more mainstream and swing for the fences. Instead, they show how much they were influenced as much by cannibal corpse and slayer as they were by their, uh, by their peers uh, in that quote-unquote new uh, metal scene. Now, when you listen to this record, if it sounds like it was made by guys who were living on the edge, it's because, well, you know, they were. Uh, the opening track, it's about 58 seconds long. It's called 515, which is the area code of the Moines. But it's basically, this band had nine members, including a DJ, a sampler, two percussionists, in addition to the traditional guys. So their DJ, Sid Wilson, was going through lots of heavy shit at the time. And had a legit meltdown in the studio of him screaming and freaking the fuck out, and so they begin this record with a remix where they chop that up, and it's basically Sid Wilson's legit meltdown starting this record, and that hmm. wa- and that launches into the, uh, uh, I think it's a classic. Uh, People equal shit uh, is the name of the song. <laughs> yeah, it, it it it's a very uh, blunt song. Uh, amazing riff. Uh, they had a, a, a guitarist named Jim Root who was really, really good. Uh, and, you know, just technically sound, like I said, Joey Jordison was one of these guys who could do the speed metal drum bass thing while, uh, double bass thing, while also keeping a funk beat uh, lyric from people equal shit. Uh, Stop your bitching and fight your way through it. I'm not like you. I just fuck up. Come on, motherfucker. Everyone has to die. People equal shit. Blah 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 blah. So really, really bleak. Uh, so, but there's a reason for this. Again, they were all fucked up and going through heavy shit like divorces and parents dying and uh, drug you know, drug and alcohol use. So, I want to refer people. Revolver magazine in 2018 they published a oral history uh, of this album called Slipknot on darkness, anger, addiction behind Iowa. Quote, unquote, we almost all died. Uh, Mm. That's the uh, that is the uh, the headline. And I'm going to read a couple of um, excerpts. This is from Corey Taylor, the uh, the lead singer uh, and uh, lyricist uh, for the band. band. I'll read this off. It's darkly funny. Um, Some of it is is dark, but it gets funny. So I'll read this whole thing. Quote, uh, I didn't meet my dad until the tour cycle for, you know, the 2004 album that they did after the subliminal verses. I didn't know his name or face. I had no idea that my mom had kept him out of my life for a very long time. When you grow up like that, you automatically assume there's something wrong with you. I thought my father didn't want to be there and didn't even contact me. It's got to be my fault. It was something that I struggled with and still do. It affects my confidence every day. I get by on bravado and." talent half the time and a little luck. But at the time, man, there was no dealing with me. I was a fucking mess. I was drinking a lot. I was in a relationship that wasn't good for me, and I didn't want to realize it at the time. We went out to L.A., and that's where I really started getting into booze and philandering. I was doing anything I could to feel good because everything else felt really bad. I was eating a lot, getting late. I wasn't feeling anything but misery. But I knew we had a responsibility, and that is why Iowa is so dark. I just remember a lot of darkness, a lot of anger. I was cutting myself recording songs in the studio. I was bleeding everywhere. I just wanted something. I didn't care what it was. I was rolling in pissed, rolling out pissed, and wasn't letting anything go. When I was doing uh, the first album, self-titled album, I was letting so much go, and it felt good. Doing Iowa, I wasn't letting anything go. It was just rage for the sake of rage. It was just gnarly, and I was so fucking unhappy. Luckily, we got a dark, brutal, amazing album out of it. And then there's another uh, uh, excerpt from him. One night, we were having patio furniture Olympics, throwing shit through the patio doors into the L.A. River. We threw chairs, all my dishes. We tried to get the bed over there at one point. And all culminated with a threesome in somebody's hotel room. I regret how it made my girl at the time feel. Jeez. (laughs) So that's kind of the punchline. And so, again, these guys, and there's more crazy shit like that. I definitely recommend uh, uh, singing that. But again, you know, and so, you know, there's a lot of down tuning. And like I said, Cannibal Corpse is a clear, uh, uh, influence, a lot of growling, but then they hit you with actual singing on um, like left behind, which uh, I think was nominated for a Grammy for best metal song. Uh, they have a really funny, uh, it, it, rocks, but it's really funny called the heretic anthem and, uh, and uh, no joke. It, it's so dumb. It's funny. But the, uh, the chorus is, if you're five, 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 then I'm six, six, six. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's fucking dumb, but it act, but it actually somewhat kind of works. So, like I said, so despite the shtick, here's the thing. Uh, they actually were re- really good musicians. Like I said, Jim Root, uh, awesome riff guy. Uh, Corey Taylor could sing his ass off. As he, he uh, Him and Jim Root had a side band called Stone Sour, which had some uh, minor hits uh, there uh, at that period. And then, uh, you know, like I said, they actually could do some pop songs. But the clear star of that band was Joey Jordison, uh, who just passed away this past July uh, after suffering from a debilipa- uh, debilitating nerve disease plus alcoholism. Astonishingly great drummer. Like I said, he was just one of these guys that was octopus arms. Uh, think, think about like Neil Peart, but even faster. And even more sort of crazy, uh, you know, just the double bass while maintaining a funk groove is a little, or I keep calling it double bass, double. Yeah. The double kick drum. uh, Pretty awesome. So these guys continue to be popular in spite of never ending series of infights, lineup changes, and you know, the deaths of their founding members, their bassist Paul Gray died of a drug overdose in 2010. Uh, But these guys are still making a lot of money. They're still on tour. They're still viable. And they've built a cult. I mean, you know, where there's all this speculation, where they've they've had fun with the masks and and all of that. So they're theatrical, and they're mostly reviled. They're mostly goofed on. They're mostly looked at as being kind of uh, uh, you know tweaked out shit rock for tweaked out shit heads. But yeah, Iowa.
0: That's exactly how I described them.
1: But I think that's unfair. Uh, They're really talented. And that album is an absolute ode to nihilism and misery and really psychosis. Uh, And ain't no ballads on that record. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Boom, 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 boom. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Shit, shit, shit. Uh, We want to kill ourselves and all that kind of psychosexual stuff. It's, it's It's an amazing record.
0: Yeah, my my uh, my response uh, to Slipknot's Iowa will be very short and sweet. Slipknot sucks ass. I mean, seriously, <laughs> that th- this is the bottom of the barrel of shitty new metal. Listen. Um Slipknot's aesthetic, their look, their theatricality, and their backstory are way more interesting than their music. <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's it, it, it's it's a testament to like how virtuoso musicians rarely make the best rock music. And Slipknot, while you can listen to them, you can tell these guys are really good musicians. Man, is this shit unlistenable. Man, does this shit suck. It's just, to me, it's just the scraping bottom of the barrel of new metal. And this came out in 2001. So this really was scraping the bottom of the barrel. And And several songs like, you know, Left Behind, which is the big hit single from this album, it says it's just unlistenable, atonal, like, just noise. Uh, Unlike Lightning Bolt, their noise is actual musical, actually musical. Slipknot, just atonal, new metal noise. But then with a really cheesy corporate rock radio chorus. Slapped onto it in the middle. Like, really, dude? <laughs> it's like, come on. It's, yeah. It's, it's I, like, I, I mean, one look, listenable shit to another.
1: Now, honestly, you know? I mean, Left Behind is the worst song on the record. And I think you're right. AR was like, well, you know, we got to put something on the radio because, yeah. again, I think there was this expectation that they were going to go in and uh, take advantage of the fact that they uh, became popular and and uh, were, were doing well mm-hmm. and that they were going to become this like huge commercial, you know, kind of like Kiss. Type act that you know that they yeah. could, that they could sell Corey Taylor's mask and make as a gazillion dollars, and instead they went out and I'll hand it to them. They kept their integrity, um, and yeah. you, know, you know they made again. It's 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 a testament to uh, the darkest of dark places becoming uh, again. I call it art metal. Uh, the two thousand four record not as good, still pretty strong. After that, yeah, then it then it becomes garbage. Uh, the, st- the stone sour stuff is actually much better than the subsequent uh slipknot stuff, and that kind of sucks. So,
0: so again, so basically, so basically, this is their one shining moment for you. Well, well, they had
1: two shining moments. The The debut is actually really good too, but this album, it's just again, it's uh, they lived it and they got it on record, and you know, just as a you know, as an orth, they weren't new metal, they were metal, metal, and I'll rephrase that. They were metal, metal, metal. Uh, And uh, they uh, were just for that time, they were extraordinary. Um, So I I will never completely. uh, Yeah. Say what you want about it. Since then, they've kind of degenerated, like literally they've degenerated, but uh, that was, that was just a masterful, uh, a masterful accomplishment uh, for them. So, so yeah, check them
0: yeah out. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe on YouTube, I know the whole album's on YouTube. Maybe if, uh, when my wife's not in the house, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll play it at full blast the way it should be heard. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll catch on to moments where you're just like, uh, you marvel at, you know, the sophistication of the riffs and then you catch yourself sometimes going like, how the hell is Joey Jordison doing that? But it's also in the context of very good songs. I mean, there's only like two bad songs on a record. The rest of it is just it's kick ass. And with that, we leave the vault. Uh that's that's way more slip nut than most of you were probably expecting. Uh <laughs> again, again, I love it. He doesn't. So at least we're <laughs> at least we're consistent with the theme. Uh and uh thereby we end uh nineteenth uh the nineteenth
0: the nineteenth edition.
1: Yes, uh, we're proud of it, which means we're going to hit twenty. And yeah. for twenty, uh, it's kind of related, and but much more unified. It came out of the same uh, creative uh, brainstorming
0: session. Exactly, exactly. Brainstorm is a good good word. Um, it came out of the same brainstorming session. I put out albums that a long list of albums that I like that. You, Chris, didn't like. And Chris made his list of albums that he liked and I didn't like. And and then, you know, we 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 weaned it and we collated. Okay, these are the albums, definitively the eight albums that I love that he doesn't. And then, uh, conversely, the albums that, you know, Chris, you love that I didn't. The leftover are the ones that we agreed on. And these, and this will be a very special 20th edition, the 20th episode, next episode, the 10 most definitively overrated albums of all time. Period. No more needs to be said. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking. If you do, catch us where you catch
1: all time. Visit us on Twitter at, at Curmudgeon Rock. Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Always check out our show notes at medium.com. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude. Stay crude. Stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.